is looking at you, kid. I'm Charles Foster King! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. What has happened, everybody? This is Wrong Real episode 531. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today we're tackling one of my all-time favorite writers, a heavy hitter who conquered both the world of fiction as well as flicks, which is a very rare achievement. And I think there's a short list of people who have managed to excel on both fronts. There are a lot of great, not, well, they're, they're writer-directors, but I think it's an even shorter and more illustrious list to be a great novelist and screenwriter. And for this conversation, I've got returning contributor Simon O'Neill, who is a massive Bud Schulberg fan. You've probably heard him in the past on our Raymond Chandler episodes, but Mr. O'Neill, welcome back to Wrong Real. Thank you, James. Yeah. Hello from sunny Dublin. See it glinting out there. Yeah, it's not super sunny here in New York. I actually kind of enjoy the distinct changing of the seasons here in New York. New York. When I lived in L.A. for seven years, you have kind of no seasons. And I think psychologically, it's just great for spring cleaning to have seasons to look forward to, but also flush out the previous ones. Yeah, I'm, I'm embracing the cold, dark winter or approaching dark winter of New York. Yeah, it's amazing. A couple of years ago, I went back to New York. I hadn't been in a few years. Three years ago, I went to New York in December, like the first or second week of December. And, and I was saying, oh, it's great because I've only ever been to New York in the summer. So it's going to be so amazing, to, the snow and the ice. And the, I went there and there was a heat wave. Just, oh, just nice. completely <laughs> untopical. Uh, we're just walking around in T-shirts. Like, that does this happen. Is, this isn't December in New York, but we were that we were sold walking through Central Park. But, but it uh, does yeah. get dark because obviously you have less mm. daylight, but then the sun's behind skyscrapers most of the time. So you go through a period for like two or three months where you just get really pale. But I've always enjoyed kind of having a vampire life. So yeah, it suits my temperament just fine. Yeah, well, New York is amazing any time of year, but uh, but I didn't get any snow, so I'm gonna have to go back and get a proper blast yeah every once in a while we'll get a brutal winter when i, I remember when i first started with my trainer a couple of years ago we were looking out over the hudson because the um, the gym is on a pier right there along the along the river and the river was frozen solid which happens like once every 20 years but it takes mm. 
like it has to stay below freezing for basically for weeks in order for the ice to work its way down the Hudson because it's mostly brackish and salty around Manhattan. And so it takes mm. a long time for that river to freeze. But when it does, and you can just walk to New Jersey, it's an impressive sight. Amazing. But yeah, that's Amazing. a very, very rare event. But uh, how the hell are you? Catches up. What have you been up to during the season of the virus? Yeah, I've been, um, well, I, I've been cultivating my own little mini internal virus uh, at the same time. So I've been, uh, you know, having a, a sort of uh, in sympathy with 2020 just to make it a completely horrible shit year. I had a bit of my own health issues, which um, I, don't, I don't really want, you know, get into. I had, a, had an operation on my hip and uh, this is a very standard kind of in out it's the most popular elective surgery in Ireland. People get it done all the time. But a small fraction, 1%, you know, you're in that special category if uh, things go wrong and you get an infection in there, which I did. And uh, once that happens, you're completely fucked and you enter your entire you. world. Of yeah, pain. yeah like, exactly. 2020 is an special. especially interesting year for you. I mean, 2020 has just been a mind fuck in so many ways for so many people for a variety of reasons. And I actually consider myself very lucky that I've emerged from 2020 relatively unscathed. So I'm sorry to hear about your your physical woes, but I actually kind of take a perverse fascination in some of the, the grisly details. Do you have any, I guess, cautionary tales or details to help other people avoid getting the infection or avoiding the surgery? Or what, what, what advice would you share for people who have not yet had this elective surgery? There's there's not, if, you need, if you're getting your knee or your hip done, I mean, you know, people say, oh, you know, I'm a little bit older than you, but I'm still reasonably young. You know, people are usually quite... <laughs> a little bit uh, older and firm, although this can happen, you know, you get your hip can kind of start going wonky at any age. But um, I saw a couple of specialists in there and they say an infection, you know, it's something that can like, I mean, someone was saying to me, you know, they're like, ask me about your hip. Go, oh, is it keyhole surgery? And I was like, no, it's like fucking barn door surgery. I got a scar. Like I was in a knife fight. Like wow. It's, it's, you get this huge entry wound. So, you know, those bacteria are tiny and they're the things that live on your body all the time. And, uh, you know, they can get in there while you're recovering and there's nothing you can do, but, you know, it's just, it's just unlucky. I, I said to one of the guys, I don't know, you know, was I being too careful? Was I not being careful enough? And especially said, look, unless you're essentially rubbing mud into it every day, you know, there's no, you know, there's no, it can be a toothache. It can be something, you know, it's just this, this bacteria that lives in unity with you. Most of the time, some of it will slip in, take hold, you know, that's what infection does. And uh, there's nothing really you can do about it, you know. You just you're just unlucky, and uh, you're just completely fucked. Then. And what you're entering an entire world of pain. Um, so I was in hospital for essentially October, and kind of came out October 29th. But now I'm feeling good and coming back to you know where I was, like a little bit of a speed bump. I went for a walk on the prom today, and the sun was shining, and it was amazing. And you know, so I'm strong like bull and all that sort of thing. But uh, I just you have any fever these... dreams while in the hospital to help her like cook up any interesting like uh, writing ideas or anything like that? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I do. I did think it would be an interesting idea to have a horror movie of someone who's recovering from a hip operation because because uh, where I, both a complication both... had a complication like that woman well, in exactly. Brazil. <laughs> exactly. Well, well, the fact that you can't you, know, you have to hobble everywhere without a certain element of suspense, even if you had your your zombie-like slow lurching creatures. But also, if you if you're in a so the first hospital and the second hospital, I was in a different hospital the second time, and they're all um, so all the hip and um, osteo uh, uh, the the knee and hip 
uh, hospitals in Ireland, a lot of them are old t TB, tuberculosis hospitals, you know, because around the time in the 30s when tuberculosis was a, was a, a real, you know, killer in Ireland, sort of like, you know, like COVID, and they would, they would put people away into the hospitals, they would quarantine them and all that sort of thing, and TB was a real killer, and then they they started to eradicate TB at around the time of the sort of hip and knee surgery was coming in. So once they were emptying these religious hospitals of all their TB patients, there were these empty at exactly the time that this um, elective osteo surgery was coming into its own. So they said, well, hey, let's just convert all these hospitals into, you know, hip and knee places. But they still have... Um, a lot of these religious statues of Mary and, you know, the heart of Sacred Heart and all this uh, on the grounds. So when you're hobbling around the grounds and it's just outside my hospital bedroom when I would because you're all, you know, you're all isolated from each other in your rooms and there are no visitors allowed. It's long days wandering around this sort of tree lined place with all these sort of slightly creepy looking religious statues. And there's this huge um, altar. Just out that I walk at every day, and I I sent a, a photograph of it to a friend of mine, and he works in RT, the state TV station. He was saying, "Oh, I've seen that in this old. It's it's from the 1932 Eucharistic Congress, this religious, um, this religious congress that came to Ireland in the 30s, and it was the footage is a, a million people mass on O'Connell Bridge in uh, in Dublin. It's like something like Triumph of the Will, but just with these sort of all these religious." Uh, uh, ceremony and this huge big altar structure is on O'Connell Bridge which is the main bridge bisects the River Liffey in the centre of Dublin and then when the Congress was over the Monsignor out in the hospital I was in thought it would be a wheeze to just take the entire building brick by brick and window pane by window pane and transplant it in 1932 money was no object to uh, cap at the hospital I was in so yeah I was just wandering around these sort of creepy old um, corridors with paintings of John Paul II and John Paul I and religious icons. So, yeah, quite inspirational and quite creepy. But I'm glad, so, glad to be out. Yeah, and I'm glad to have you back on the show and talking flicks. Well, today the subject at hand is, as I mentioned before, writer Bud Schulberg, who grew up in the movie biz, and he wrote about the movie biz. He also wrote about combat sports, wrote an excellent novel about boxing, but also did a lot of journalism about boxing, won an Academy Award for writing On the Waterfront, wrote one of the most eerily prophetic political films of the 1950s, A Face in the Crowd, which... The same way Network in the 1970s predicted so much to come, I feel like a face in the crowd beat it by 20 years. He lived a very ripe old life. He lived well into his 90s. I think I married mm -hmm. four times. This is a guy who lived, lived a very full, rich existence and left behind an extraordinary body of work. So I guess, man, let's just start big picture. How did you first hear about Bud Schulberg? When did you become aware of him as an individual? Well, before I do that, I've just written down a note here, a first order of business, and it's something from our last episode that oh, I wanted Leila, to correct. Leila. And I never do this because, I, you know, I kind of think when you're doing the free-flowing chat and you make a factual mistake, 
whatever you know if you say something happened in 1980 but it was really like in the 1990s no big deal but uh we were talking about the last movie we talked about was strangers on the train which was written by raymond chandler and then he eventually got knocked off the picture by hitchcock to be replaced by chenzi ormond uh and i was listening back to the thing when, when i listened to it back uh i certainly referred to him uh, as chenzi ormond as he uh, presuming he was a bloke, but actually he, Chenzi Ormond was a woman, a uh, female novelist from North Idaho who lived to the ripe old age of 98. Chenzi Ormond of wow. Hayden, who wrote two novels, countless magazine pieces and several screenplays, none that were as big or as popular as Strangers on Train, but died July the 24th of complications from a broken hip in 2004. So I feel an affinity for her there. And I, I'm, I'm sorry to have, uh, I sent myself back to the uh, gulag for my unconscious bias training. Yeah, well, the writers there are funny, like Evelyn Waugh. I thought Evelyn Waugh was a woman for a long time. We were studying Evelyn Waugh in uh, college and finally I learned, oh no, that's a man. And Lee Brackett, I thought Lee Brackett was a man. Lee Brackett was a woman. Or Isaac Dennison, sounds like a dude. It's a check. Yeah. So it's like, <laughs> well, well, of course, had it been, had it been, you know, Dorothy B. Hughes or Ida Lavino or something, it would have, but Jen, I've never heard the name before or since, you know, so I guess I uh, just wanted to correct that. Yeah, I think right. there's uh, something very literary about uh, a girl having a boy name or a boy having a girl name, whatever that means, depending upon your point of view, if you're in the writing world. Yeah, if you're a male writer and you want to go by the name Beverly or something like that, like it seems, it seems very appropriate. Well, I was I was a member years ago. I was I was working in a bar and a comedy club in Dublin and I was driving to the bar staff home and they're both much younger than me. And I had, had, a, had a tape with Chet Baker and someone asked, you know, who's she? Who, who's who's that on the radio on the tape recording to she? I said, that is not a woman. That is the beautiful, angelic voice of Chet Baker. And they, they said, who's Chet Baker? I said, well, you know, he's a blues kind of trumpet player, but he also recorded vocal, you know, vocal albums like Billie Holiday. And they went, who's he? You know, so yeah, with the names thing, you can trip over. Them. Well, with that. Bud, there's no no confusion. Bud's uh, that's a very tough for a guy who made his name or made a huge reputation for writing about boxing. I feel like Bud's like the perfect first name. You can't ask for a better one. Well, it is a great first name if you were actually born as, which I wrote down, Seymour Wilson Schulberg. You nice. know, Seymour. So I mean, I don't know. I think I read it somewhere. Uh, I've been reading Memoirs of a Hollywood Prince, which is um, his memoirs of, it only goes up as far as when he was 18 years of age, uh, and I'm only halfway through it, but it's, it's, it's basically his um, early life um, in New York and then in Hollywood, and some, it, might, it might say where he picked up the name Bud, but obviously, yeah, Bud is, it's like an Elvis name, it's a, a name with a punch, you know, yeah. it's just a one one syllable and uh, it's a name for a guy who writes about boxing and uh, it's a pretty cool name i think it's very important for writers sometimes to take an obsessive interest in a really violent sport whether that's rugby or lacrosse mm. or mm. mma it just keeps you from getting too far up your own ass about uh you know very lofty topics and that sort of thing because obviously writers they spend a lot of time in solitude and a lot of time just with with their own personality i feel like just a, a, a very keen interest in sports helps keep you grounded. And there's a, there's a gritty realism in a lot of his stories that is undeniable. And whether you're talking about on the waterfront or just the trials and tribulations of, the, of showbiz and what makes Sammy run. And 
I just absolutely love and adore his style. But he's also capable of being incredibly stylish and eloquent. I mean, I would argue, I read a novel for the first time based on your recommendation, The Disenchanted, <clears throat> which is loosely based on his experiences working with Fitzgerald. The flashback sequences of Manly Halliday, the, the thinly veiled Fitzgerald, in the 20s and early 30s when, he's, when you see him in his glory days are as exhilarating as some of the chapters from like The Great Gatsby. And so he's an incredibly versatile writer as well. Yeah, I, I dug it out. I have my copy of The Disenchanted there. It was just one of the ugliest covers I've ever seen for such a beautiful, tender book. But uh, yeah, I read this like 20, 20 years ago uh, and it just absolutely blew me away. And um, it came up the last time when we were talking about it. it's It's absolutely, as you say, it's a really poetic, beautiful. It's a great American novel. And, and you know, I think one of the similarities with Raymond Chandler and Bud Schulberg is they were both like, like I, you know, argued <laughs> at length the last time that, you know, Chandler is one of the great American writers and certainly uh, The Long Goodbye and Farewell, My Lovely, are the equal of anything in American literature. And I would argue that The Disenchanted is as well. I mean, it's, it's a long time since I read it. I'm going to read it again soon, but it just has that combination of sort of tough, and lyrical and uh, if anyone is inter if you're interested and in funny as hell i mean it's, it's all about two guys one who's a beginner one who's a veteran writing a movie together and the adventures that they have when one of them the very famous novelist loosely based on fitzgerald falls off the wagon and goes on the most intense three-day bender lost weekend that a human can endure or not endure as we see and it's funny what it reminded me of. I have, I have a couple friends, not a lot, but a couple friends who back in the day, they didn't need food, they didn't need caffeine, they didn't need sleep, they didn't need exercise, they just needed the empty calories of alcohol. And with the mm. empty calories of alcohol, it could sustain them indefinitely. And they're exhausting to be around past the first hour or two because they're off on a tear when right at the point where you're ready to kind of go home and go to sleep. And I just had so many intense flashbacks of these people. Like there's this great bit toward the end of the novel where the young, the young writer is in a bar with his friends, ready to have a reunion with all of his college buddies. And he just feels the specter behind him. And he realizes that Manly has gotten back up and come back out in the public. He's like, no! <laughs> just that feeling you have when somebody who's on a dark, dark, evil bender wanders into the room and you know you're going to have to deal with them. And anyway, I, I, I absolutely adore The Disenchanted. Yeah, beautiful. It's a beautiful book. It reminded me of, you know, that Pete Rotula movie where he plays the washed up old drunks is stuntman. My favorite year, is it that movie? I've not kinda... seen My Favorite Year, but I've seen the oh, stuntman. Stuntman's incredible. But yeah, I've, but I've always yeah. heard about My Favorite Year, but unfortunately it's... Oh, it's pretty good. Uh, Peter O'Toole is amazing. In, in and anything, he was not he afraid plays... to have a drink in his... No, he was yeah. He's very, very uh, convincing as the drunk sort of Errol Flynn type character who's coming back. And it's a cross between that and Barton Fink. I mean, I, I, I read The Disenchanted years before I saw Barton Fink, one of my favorite Combros movie. And I was, I was watching it going, I was expecting it to say, you know, based on The Disenchanted by Bud Schulberg or inspired by, you know, obviously they just, I mean, perhaps they never read or have heard of The Disenchanted, but the whole setup where you have the sort of idealistic, writer young writer from the 1930s who's sort of left-wing and sort of anarchist and he's brought to hollywood and then he mixes up with the sort of guy from the 20s from the jazz age who doesn't care about all that stuff just wants to live a bon vivant lifestyle so this is so like obviously the disenchanted you don't have the uh, john goodman character setting fire to buildings and everything next door and there's a lot of 
kooky out there stuff but the basic structure of the book is very similar to the disenchanted and uh, the the actual novel itself i read or heard a story from bud Schuberg, um who was saying when, when he's a young screenwriter uh, uh, around 1939 he was working on a script called winter carnival which is this ice movie that they used to make where everyone <laughs> go out in the snow and like there'd be ice ice sculptures and it's the Halloween golden age they love making exactly, that kind of shit exactly yeah. and uh, set in Dartmouth New Hampshire and he was obviously commissioned to write this novel and he set it in Dartmouth New Hampshire where he the Ivy League college where he went and uh, the studio told him uh, they'd assign another writer to work with them. And he said, when I asked who, they said, F. Scott Fitzgerald. And I said, he's dead, isn't he? And they said, no, he's in the next room reading your treatment. So he wow. went in. Which is like and, the uh, second chapter of the novel uh, Disenchanted. Exactly. Uh, he went in and then uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald said, I'm afraid I don't think this is very good. And he said, I don't either. So we went to lunch and then they became friends after that. And Fitzgerald was on the wagon at the time. And uh, they had to fly for this conference in New York. And uh, BP, who was uh, Bud's father, who was, who was again, uh, someone who was there at the ground floor. We should talk a little bit about... Uh, he was well, head of production at Paramount? Or what, what did BP do? He was, yeah. He was head of production at Paramount. And he, um, he basically started off as a photo play writer. He was basically, before they, before they had the term screenwriter, he was a screenwriter. And back then... You know, a screen, a photo play was like a, a, a maybe a full scap and full scap page and a half telling you what was going to happen in the in the one real short that you were going to shoot, and there was no dialogue in it because they were silent. And these were movies for the Nickelodeon, and he would, you know, have these movies played in the Nickelodeon where people literally put slots in and watched them. And he had a cousin who had a um, amusement arcade. And one of the things in the amusement arcade was like a, it was like a bus, a bus uh, thing that you sat in and it moved and shake as if you were moving. And on the front would play, you know, the gondolas of Venice or you were in the Wild West or, or whatever, just a travelogue. And or person taking it, a bath. Like some of those early uh, five minute shorts are so absurd, but it, it was such a, a remarkable new technology. You could do a short about anything, uh, people kissing or people learning to tie a tie. But like a, a, lot, a lot of these early like nickel shorts were, you know, pretty rudimentary in their subject matter. Yeah, they were pretty bonkers. I mean, a lot of these ones were sort of that when they had that early point of view going into something. But when he, when they interviewed people afterwards about what their favorite attraction was, they all said the movie. Thing, and he realized that the they didn't need the, the 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 cart thing to be. You know, they didn't need the the buggy. They would just sit on a chair and watch movies. Yep. Everyone was fascinated by them. And then so he was like, you know, we should make like long. You know, we should make like five reels together like make a 20 minute movie and everyone's nobody's gonna watch a 20 minute movie. you know same when when sound came in you know we could put audio on it nobody's gonna want to watch a movie with sound. you know every advance was was sort of uh, knocked back and uh, yes yeah, so he was right into the ground floor working with a fellow called adolf zucker and uh, then when bud was about five they moved to hollywood and it was the original hollywood like a couple of dirt streets and a few studios and he went into business it, it looked almost like the wild west you look at pictures of hollywood yeah. in the teens it's yeah like you said dirt roads hollywood and vine looks like like a wyatt Earp movie yeah and, and bud would cycle from school every day and drop into the studio where you know they'd be filming a a, a silent movie with you know uh 
It could be with um, Mary Pickford or whoever the hell it was at the time. You know, Clara Bow was discovered by BP and put in the movies and became one of these American icons. And Clara Bow like, was flirting with Bud when he was six, seven years of age in the studio. So he was really dropped in there. And BP was went into business with, uh, with Irving Thalberg. And then they fell out and became sworn enemies. And then BP went on to form Paramount. You know, but but in, in I got distracted again. But, but uh, when, when he was... Writing that uh, winter cabaret movie, his dad, uh, BP, sent him two magnums of mum's champagne to celebrate. And, and you know, innocently, he opened the champagne on the plane to New York with uh, Fitzgerald. And, and sealed Fitzgerald's doom. <laughs> what, what, what harm can a little boat of champagne do? And, of course, they, so they got through the first bottle and then they landed in Kansas City to refuel. And then they went up again. They destroyed the second bottle. And then they just started drinking on the brandy. And then they met Thalberg or whoever it was that they had. And they basically spent two or three days on a complete They hadn't written a word, not a letter, not a sentence, not a full stop. And they just stunk of booze. And it, this was like one of the many occasions when he thought his career was finished before it even started. Um, yeah, so that whole, whole experience was dreadful. The movies, I haven't seen it. It's supposed to be pretty silly. But it gave the inspirational for this movie. For this book. The Disenchantment is one of those novels that's too good to be made to be made into a movie unless you were to raise Bud Schulberg from the dead to write it. And I think the moment for it probably has passed. The moment for it to be made into a movie would have been like two years after it was published. You get Billy Wilder to direct because he'd obviously already done something similar to Lost Weekend but knew the dark side of showbiz as he showed in Sunset Boulevard. Like You need that kind of acidic sensibility who's really good with writers. And so, yeah, I think Disenchanted... And also, What Makes Sammy Run. People have been trying to make What Makes Sammy Run into a movie for 80 years, and it's never been, it's never happened. I don't think it ever will, because Hollywood doesn't like making movies that kind of make fun of itself. They like movies that... They, Hollywood loves making movies about itself where they celebrate itself, but What Makes Sammy Run is ruthless. So, yeah, these, these are, are essential reads for fans of film history, essential reads for just fans of the movies in general. But I think both novels are just they're strong enough on their own that they can just be left alone. Yeah. What makes Sammy run? I haven't read. It's on it's on my list. Um, and it's it's his first novel. And he wrote it. I was I, I saw an interview with him the other night and he discussed when he was writing it was around the time in the 1930s when he was coming out of his association with the communist party in america and part of his you know there's obviously a lot of controversy about the house huac and mccarthy and all this but sort of prior to that like a lot of these idealistic 1930s like your man in the disenchanted and like yeah. Martin Fink and Barton they were Fink, going to they're yeah, all, if you were in college in the 30s if you were at all left of center, there's a chance you had a minimum new communist and or ha- had communist sympathies of some kind. And then, of course, you get a little older and you have the House of Un-American Activities Committee. Are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? And they're like, ah! And so, yeah, yeah they, a lot of them had a choice to make. Like, d- to what degree do they throw their friends under the bus from their youthful affiliations? I mean, during the time of the Great Depression, where people obviously had a, just a very different view on life. Pre-World War II, it was just a very different world. Yeah, I mean, he 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 joined the Communist Party and was very committed to it, like a lot of these people. And maybe maybe he felt a bit, you know, he came from quite a lot of wealth. Certainly when he was a kid, his father was earning. A champagne socialist. (laughs) Absolutely, champagne. A mum's socialist, socialist, uh, a Bollinger socialist. But when he was 60, when his dad died when he was in his early 60s, mid 60s, completely skint. You know, he he gambled everything away. BP was, could drop, you know, 
the equivalent of millions in an evenings. You know, BP was an, a real bon vivant. He would stay up all night playing cards. He'd got the fights and everything, and he would have affairs. Uh, but but Bud uh, sort of. Um, as you say, they all saw the Soviet Union as this wonderful paradise. And like now they saw America as this hellhole where everything was wrong and terrible and yeah, systematic. Grass is always greener. Yeah. yeah. And then in the sort of late 30s, he wanted to become a writer and he was writing the book, What Makes Nami Run. And he had to get permission from his sort of commander or whoever was the leader of his little, you know, uh, communist clique. And the guy said, well, here, you know, OK, you can start writing the book, but, you know, you're going to have to give me sort of chapter by chapter and I'll be able to see if this is. Comrade approved art is always a very slippery slope. And he said, look, I, I can't do this. This is, you know, this is not, you know, this is no way. And, but he said, like, it was literally like, you know, it's like the IRA or something or the mafia. You couldn't just walk away. You know, he was like, I just wanted to get in the car and drive away. But there's something about that time. So, like, there was the personal. And then also on the political front, uh, I found a quote from where he was saying he, tra he, he actually traveled to Moscow in 1934, Bud Schilberg. Like a lot of these guys went to Moscow and they went, look at this paradise. Uh, and then he met all these writers. He met Gorky and he met a lot of these writers. And then uh, he says, what really affected me was the treatment of Soviet writers. In 34, I met a dozen authors. Ten years later, every one of them had been liquidated. I met Isaac oh, Bay, a yeah, wonderful disillusionment short story. Is a, it yeah. can be an ugly, soul-crushing thing. Yeah, the, the story of communism in Russia and uh, how Stalinism took root, I imagine – I'm sure a lot of people tried to cling to their illusions longer than others because sometimes you get so invested in something, it's pretty humiliating to have to have like an about face or reverse course. And now, you know what? Maybe I should not have been so loyal to these folks because, I mean, look at all these artists who are now in the gulag or working in Siberia or just been executed outright. And it, sometimes it takes a long time for people to acknowledge. Yeah, I, I, perhaps I fucked up, but obviously he um, he had a parting of the ways, to, to put it nicely, uh, and, and it was a gradual thing, but it seems like by the early 50s, he was prepared to name names, partially out of his disillusionment over the way that the Soviet Union evolved. Yeah, I mean, he listened to this interview last night. There's an incredible uh, interview with him on the uh, U.S., uh, the Holocaust Memorial Museum website. This is a three-hour interview with him, and he's very elderly at the time, but he's just recording, and he said the... The other big thing was the um, Nazi-Soviet pact, you know, that blew a lot of them away. In 39, when it was becoming clear that, you know, Nazism was the biggest enemy of the Western world, the idea that Stalin would go into a pact with Hitler sort of shocked a lot of these idealistic young um, young communists. This, the second order that I wanted to, it's not a mistake, but I've, I've just got a few notes and I'll, show, I'll lose my way after this. But the one other thing I wanted to mention, and I'm going to bring Raymond Chandler back into the conversation nice. one last time. All, all roads lead uh, to Raymond Chandler with Simon O'Neill. All roads lead to Raymond Chandler <laughs> because uh, in 1944 at the peak, you know, as, as we we're talking, in his Annus Mirabilis, when everything was going right and he was nominated for an Oscar, I just read this one little detail in uh, in uh, Judith Freeman's uh, book uh, about his relationship with Sissy. And uh, he was um, earning a fortune and he was working on Don Emerty and the book was being filmed and it was coming out in paperback. Uh, so, he tr But uh, he was worried about the course of the war, so he tried to re-enlist. 
and he was at this stage in his mid 50s and uh, he was turned down because of his eyesight his age and general ill health <laughs> 20 years of alcoholism he was a physical wreck but i just thought how i just thought that was quite really quite touching imagining this guy with you know who didn't need to do anything like that and he wasn't even a young man but just out of this sort of sense of duty he thought i'm gonna sign up you know my country needs me or whatever he was worried and so was um Bud Schulberg and a lot of these younger guys who all decided when they saw the rise of Nazism that they had to do something, that they had to give up their sort of careers. I mean, he'd written all these Winter Carnival, he'd written these these movies. And then uh, he decided that uh, he needed to go abroad and get involved in the war. And, and I watched over yeah, the I mean, last he worked in the OSS, weeks. like working, working with John Ford. I mean, John Ford had a similar kind of evolution as well, where if you watch something like The Informer in the 30s, or like How Green Was My Valley, you can see, or uh, or uh, Grapes of Wrath, John Ford's mm-hmm. politics in the 30s probably would have been, at least had some overlap with Bud Schulberg, but then post-World War II, John Ford went in a very different direction. But I just love the idea of John Ford and Bud Schulberg uh, working on uh, documentaries together. Yeah, I think that's amazing. And I, and I watched over the last kind of couple of weeks, um, the thing on Netflix, Five Came Back. Have you seen that? I have not. It's, what is that? It's an absolutely incredibly documentary that you'd love. It's about the five directors who went away to war during the second world war it's john ford frank capra george, John Houston, george stevens yeah. frank capra william wyler uh, william wyler uh, yeah those five and uh, they all decided that they should get involved in the war effort so yeah john ford set up the oss and various of them went off to war and i mean initially they didn't know what they were doing they were they were um they did a lot of basic training in the states and they were filming, and then they were sent to, John Ford was sent to London. They filmed the, the Blitz and everything. But uh, Bud Schulberg, yeah, was asked by John Ford, because of his experience, to come on board as like a screenwriter, as a, as a writer, or something like all these. They started producing these movies um, called Why We Fight, which were there to recruit people to go to fight. Yeah, the American equivalent of like keeping the British end up. Exactly. And they and they uh, they need they all needed voiceover and narration. So Schulberg would write these movies and um, they went to London and then they went to uh, Ford was there on D-Day. He he was on the boat to D-Day landing and, he was and they there recorded for the Battle of Midway. I love if I'm looking at IMDb yeah. right now, some of these shorts they made for the military are great. Like one of the titles is just sex hygiene. Obviously, uh, you know, some soldiers when they were abroad needed some some lessons on the value of using condoms and so on and so forth. But I think that's one thing that's missing from a lot of film culture now. Like the idea of like Jimmy Stewart enlisting and becoming a war hero. When you come back from an experience like that, it just changes you as a performer. And it just informs show business in general. And uh, yeah, I think a, a few more veterans making movies might help just give us more variety in our uh, entertainment. Yeah. And what was interesting, of course, in, in you notice it in the five um, came back, it's it's Steven Spielberg and Guillermo del Toro and people are being interviewed about, you know, uh, Paul Greengrass and all that. And they're all Hollywood liberals, you know, and they're all, but a lot of these guys who went, you know, they went to the war because they were right-wing republicans you know like they and they, so so they described their politics as being confused which means they were obviously republicans you know and then, or they went into the war lefties and came out on the right and things like that like jimmy stewart and henry fonda were 
best friends in the 30s and 40s, but post-World War II, I think, I mean, Jimmy Stewart, had, I think, had more of an intense experience in World War II, but they had a parting of the ways politically and stopped seeing eye to eye about a, a variety of things. But yeah, that was a, a huge schism in Hollywood in the 40s and 50s. Like, I mean, John Wayne, who did not fight in World War II, he would always get called out by John Ford and people like that for his failure to uh, serve. But he had just started becoming a star, and he really had a, a choice to be made. But speaking of John Wayne, he did attack what makes Sammy run as being part of a communist plot because the book, a lot of it's about the formation of the Writers Guild, and Schulberg was a part of the Writers Guild from the late 30s and from its inception up through like the 1980s, and he had been to like every single meeting for, for decades. So it's interesting seeing how... Uh, Politics, like in any era, they were very complex, but I imagine that the Schulberg of the early 50s, who knows, he and John Wayne might have had more to talk about after uh, Schulberg decided to uh, turn turn his back on the Communist Party. Yeah, I mean, Schulberg, he remained a classic Hollywood liberal all his life, and you can see it in all his screenplays, you know, even the, late, even the Everglades the and everything, yeah. and on the waterfront. Yeah. But uh, yeah, in The Five Go Back, they describe uh, when Ford got back, and was working on movies with Wayne, he would mercilessly slag him about, oh, yeah. you know, being a big, big, tough guy. He would say, so like, uh, can't you at least, like, so, can't you at least pretend to salute, like, somebody who's been in the military? I mean, he would really dress him down. But John yeah. Ford, on his sets, they called it being on the bottom of the barrel. He always had one person he was fucking with on his sets. And sometimes it would be John Wayne, and sometimes it'd be, you know, a grip or electric or whatever. But... Yeah, when he would let you have it, <laughs> he would really let you have it. And Jimmy Stewart, apparently it took him a long time while working with John Ford before he finally got to be at the bottom of the barrel. It's a sensation unlike anything else. But if you watch uh, the documentary uh, directed by John Ford by Peter Bogdanovich, they go into uh, – I don't want to get too sidetracked by John Ford mm. because that's a, another podcast for uh, an, another day. But definitely check out the documentary directed by John Ford for people out there who are interested in this subject. Yeah, I mean, Schulberg doesn't come up by name in the uh, five uh, five came back film it's if you're into film history it's an amazing three-part documentary on netflix which is absolutely incredible but but he was with ford's oss and when when ford went over on d-day at the end of d-day he just went to this house on the french coast where all these officers were were stationed and just went on a three-day drinking binge he didn't stop drinking for three days stayed up all night came irascible started you know fighting snarling like a dog until they threw him out and then he went back to hollywood and his war was over but bud schuberg stayed with the oss and then they would move further and further into belgium you know france belgium and then into germany and then George Stevens' unit, and he, he, he says in this documentary with the Holocaust Museum uh, that a lot of people think that he worked with George Stevens. He didn't. He worked with John Ford, and then he worked with the OSS. But, but George Stevens was plowing ahead with the Allies as they went in. So this OSS unit, who had been there to record D-Day and everything, now their job was to record the concentration camps yeah. as these guys walked into the concentration camp. And they were some of the first shoot, to see it. Yeah, they were the first to see it and they recorded every fucking frame. And then they, you know, you can see, I watched, there's a couple of documentaries on uh, YouTube. Uh, the, the, the George Stevens documentaries uh, are up there where he goes through all the various concentration camps and it is fucking grim. It is so, I mean, even at this remove, it is, it is so dour to watch it just on something as bland as YouTube. I was watching a few of them the other day. They're they're really worth a watch. And he, he um stayed and record every frame every frame of everything he could um but schubert fascinating bit of film history he was there when they arrested lenny riefenstahl like i mean this is when you have 
like world history and World War II and filmmakers all interacting and colliding, it just makes the filmmaking of today seem so like tame and unadventurous and like uninspired. But just the idea of filmmakers like Lenny Riefenstahl and Bud Schulberg being caught up in these world events. Oh, I mean, it, I feel like that that's, that's a movie unto itself. Yeah. I mean, Bud Schulberg's life would make a pretty incredible movie. Uh, yeah. When he was in the OSS, the reason he didn't work with Stevens was Stevens was recording all these, um, concentration camp all this concentration camp footage you know an assessment for for posterity not for posterity but you know for as a record of the horrors that were being uh, that were inflicted on all these uh, um jewish and political prisoners but schulberg then went to nuremberg um and he um he, his job was to was was to find None of, none of this, uh, so the Nuremberg trials were coming up, but none of the footage that Stevens was recording could be used because they could say it was being filmed by the Allies. It's manipulated. What they could only, uh, what was admissible was only footage that had been shot by the Nazis themselves. So Schulberg's job with the other OSS intelligence, I mean, he was trained by the CIA, was to find film and he knew that there were films of the Nazis doing their experiments and everything. Uh, there was film of the uh, trial, the guys who tried to blow up Hitler, tried to kill Hitler. So he, he was looking for film of that. Apparently, the guys who were caught when they were when they were um, when they were found guilty, they were hung up on meat hooks and left to die. Oh. And the whole thing was filmed. And this this film was 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 go, was go, was was going to be sent by Hitler to all the soldiers around around the war to 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 inspire them, and even one of the German high command said, "No, this is not going to inspire." Yeah, that might, people. Uh, this is going hey, to be, it might damage morale. Face see their fellow might, officers exactly. hanging on meat hooks. Yeah, so so there was films like that, you know, like snuff movies and things like that, and he he he, he would. He would get a tip off that there was film in, you know, this cellar and this building. And so they would jump into a Jeep and they'd drive. And when they arrived, it would be in flames, you know. And then they got a tip off for this other place and they arrived. And again, the nitrate was all in flames, you know. They, they could scramble in and save a couple of feet of it. And they, you know, he said when this happened twice, they realized that there was, there was a spy or that someone was tipping off that the Germans were trying to go around and burn the evidence that he said that they had, he knew, he knew this, that this footage existed because they had what they called dessert movies, Hitler and Goebbels and all these would get these movies of what was going on, the concentration camps, and they would watch them after they'd had their dinner over brandy. That's what these sick That's fucks dark. were like. Yeah. That's dark. So, so he was there searching out this stuff. And of course he was a Jew. He was Jewish you know, when all these horrors, you know, he was invested in finding this stuff. And he eventually found millions and millions of feet of footage from Dachau and the various concentration camps. And and his job was to splice it all together into the Nuremberg film. You know, the Nazi plan was the name of the film. And um, he he. I mean, these guys had to sift through. It's like what, you know, people on Facebook have to do now, watching all this uh, sort of stuff, these monitors. They had to sift through all these hours, and, and they eventually got it. The trial, the Nuremberg trial, was was suspended twice. And he said without that, they'd never have got it ready. There was just too many millions of feet of film. But eventually they got it down to four hours, and they had, like, bits of Triumph of the Will, and they had footage from the camps and everything. And the footage went a long way towards convicting 
von Ribbentrop and these people and they ended up at the end of a fucking rope where they deserved, you know, at the yeah, end I mean, of people it. People knew about the camps. I mean, I, I was just watching uh, Mank last night, the David Fincher film about uh, Herman J. Mankiewicz. Mm, and cool. he did a thing where he basically paid for an entire village in Germany to come over to America. Does he help like just tons of people flee Germany? So people were vaguely aware, but word of mouth is an entirely different thing from seeing actual real footage i mean there's just like you know pictures worth a thousand words and a film's worth a thousand pictures and so i don't think the the full gravity of the horror of what the nazis have been up to had become uh, vividly apparent to people until they finally saw this footage reminds me of when i was a, a kid my grandfather had a world war ii scrapbook and we were just flipping through it because most of it was uh just when he was um going through like his his basic training and we were really little. And we got to a part toward the end of the book where at the, I remember at the time being so confused. I couldn't tell what the pictures were. I thought at the time in my mind, I was like, what are all these dolls doing lined up in rows? Because they were so inhuman looking and so skeletal. I c couldn't compute that these were dead bodies. And I remember my mm. grandfather just walked by. I saw where we'd gotten in the scrapbook and just picked up the scrapbook without a word, folded it closed and walked away. And it wasn't until he came and gave a lecture to my fifth grade class that I finally was able to make the connection, like, oh my God, like now, now, now it all, now it all becomes clear, all becomes make, makes sense. But yeah, it, people can't really digest the, the the horror and the scope of that situation until they're confronted with the the brutal images. Yeah, I mean, it, like some of this footage, even the, the the YouTube video, the George Stevens films, like he was he obsessively recorded every detail because he wanted it to be there fresh you know and that what they would do is they round up all the local nazi officials and force them on a tour of the camps you know and they were all oh jesus i never knew this was going on you know oh, yeah, and they, they, said lenny riefenstahl said, yeah. said like oh i'm so misunderstood i'm so not not political and uh schulberg was not convinced well well yeah when he went to arrest so he 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 part part of his thing was to arrest uh riefenstahl so he 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 again like the film he he was going around. He would go. Oh, he'd hear. He'd hear. He'd hear that she'd been somewhere, and he'd go, and she wasn't there. And he eventually tracked her down. Like he said, he was. She was hiding in, in full sight. Like she wasn't in a bunker or anything. But she was in Kitzbühel, in this beautiful uh, house overlooking a, 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 a Bavarian lake, you know. And he called in, and he was in his navy uniform, and he went in to see her, and like this old butler kind of went off to get her, and he sat in the, the lobby for about half an hour. He said. Well, she dolled herself up because she was a film star as well. Oh, as she, yeah, she's uh, a major actress. I mean, she's obviously a brilliant director. I mean, I wouldn't say that I approve of uh, the team that she was working for, but when it comes to raw technique, her talent is undeniable. Yeah, so, yeah, she came down and she was, of course, I'm not a political animal, of course. I'm just an artist and everything. And she talked about her days in Hollywood, you know, not knowing that Uber had been in Hollywood at when she was being presented and all this sort of thing in the mid thirties. Uh, and then he took out um, his uh, papers to serve her. And she, that's when she screamed and went crazy saying, Oh my God, he's going to arrest me. He's going to arrest me. And he said, look, you know, I'm not arresting you. I'm subpoenaing you as a witness. And she was brought as a witness to the, uh, to the Nuremberg trials, you know, which it's funny because the, the whole triumph of the will, I, I had see, I saw a thing uh, a little bit, um, Recently on Twitter, some guy had done a side by side of uh, of Trump's returning from hospital, side by side with the, the triumph of the will, you know. And, and and I think this, when I watch the George Stevens movies of the depravity of the Holocaust, and I see someone on you know 
YouTube very lazily re referring to Donald Trump as a Nazi or a fascist, it sort of makes me quite angry because, you know, Trump is not a Nazi or a fascist. Well, people use that word so casually and it loses yeah. all meaning. Well, it demeans, demeans the Holocaust is what it does. It demeans yeah. that what it, what, what it is using as a reference. And it, then means, it means six million dead bodies like for, for yeah. starters. Yeah, I mean, all that sort of torture and suffering, which is, you know, beyond human comprehension. But some guy put this video and it's like, you know, Trump getting into a helicopter, Trump getting out of, you know, it's like a 30 second clip. And beside it's 30 seconds of drive from Will. I mean, also, then, you can do side by side with Star Wars, like the final well, of scene of Star Wars, when they're going up to get their medals from Leia, the, the staging and the framing, George Lucas was inspired by the staging and the framing of Time for the Will. Like, obviously, he was not inspired by the politics of Time for the Will, but he wasn't inspired by the craft and the technique. Yeah, and this guy then, underneath, you know, he put a tweet, like, you know, 10 million likes, and then underneath it, there's this tweet with, you know, a fraction of the likes saying, worth mentioning that these are a collection of shots from the Time for the Will, meaning that the White House film is playing out in retail, but the shots on the right are scattered. So basically, this is a 30-second clip, and I've trawled the two-hour length plus of Triumph of the Will to get 30 seconds of shots. You know, it's like, what else looks like Triumph of the Will? You know, the English football team arriving in Mexico in 1970. You know, anything, if you edit it like yeah, this. Any, any you know, rally where people are excited and, and there you have public speakers. I mean, Yeah, and somebody yeah. waves from a hotel window. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, so when I see stuff like that, I just think it's a little bit late. I think the whole Nazi thing is thrown are about. Are you suggesting too, that too political commentary on social media sometimes is not rigorous and complex and nuanced and well thought out? How dare you? As, as, as outlandish as that may sound, I think sometimes exaggerate people exaggerate for effect and that people like Bud Schuberg, who is himself a classic Hollywood liberal who would have despised Donald Trump, would probably recognize the difference between, you know, Trump's America and Nazi Germany. Yeah, being a reality TV star and being a totalitarian dictator, two different things. Well, one, one of the classic sort of tests for, you know, you know, we're living in a, in a fascist dictatorship. No, you're not. You know, and, and one of the classic tests is so if you're a comedian and an artist uh, and you sort of spend much of your time insulting the fascist dictator who runs your fascist, fascist dictatorship. And the only result to you is that you earn more money and you get more kudos from your peer group and you get more job opportunity. That is not a fascist dictatorship. If you do that in Mao's China or Hitler's Germany. And they give your balls a gentle squeeze without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you just, you know, you're just How not there. How dare you deprive disappear. these people of their victimhood narratives? I won't, I won't stand for it on Wrong Real. Yeah, I know this is, this is outrageous stuff, so I'll move on. But anyway, I just that sort of stuff winds me up, and I think I, I really admire someone like uh, you and you and I see eyeball to eyeball. Schulberg is one of the adults in the room, and he would. Exactly. Um, I should say he. I I, I I don't want to speak on his behalf, but I think he would be less than impressed by some of the discourse by people who, in theory, should be on his side. But I imagine just because someone's on your side doesn't mean you should put up with them not doing their homework and not not doing the heavy lifting exactly and he, he makes this you know he makes this three-hour recording which i would advise anyone to hunt hunt out on the holocaust museum website because he, you know he sees it as his duty to record this you know and he's quite elderly at the time so i don't think he would admire people who cheapen that sort of suffering for political gain when people no. casually use any word whether it's nazi fa fascist you know totalitarian or racist like any horrible name that basically can be a career ender when people throw it around flippantly 
you drain the words of all meaning, which in the long term is actually you're, you're fighting against yourself, the goals you're trying to accomplish. You're actually mm-hmm. working against yourself. Whereas once upon a time, those words had this like incredible, had this incredible power. And I think um, most people on social media can't think beyond five seconds. Well, any final words about his military career, his political affiliations, or his books? Because I feel like by the early 50s, he can't, doesn't close the door on writing books. But he's at this point, he's got three extraordinary novels under his belt. I mean, I think What Makes Emmy Run, one of the best about showbiz ever, The Harder They Fall, one of the best sports novels ever written, just an absolutely hard-hitting, ruthless depiction of what it's like to... Work in the uh, the boxing industry. I love combat sports, but it can be an ugly business. As the harder they fall, it, it absolutely. I mean, the movie is cool. The novel is is more. I'll just uh, I'll put it that way. And the Disenchanted, as we mentioned before, just an absolutely beautiful book. It's a weird thing where it's like, what if he had never written a single movie and just had written like three more novels in the fifties? Like, would he have been as big as a novelist as one of like? The, would he have been like a Hemingway or a Fitzgerald or a Faulkner or any of these other luminaries you care to mention? But he mm. does make this pivot and starts writing some of the best movies of that decade. So how should we crack this nut? Where do you want to get started? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess that's interesting because, but he was always going to write movies because he was born into it. Yeah. You know, he, say, he says that his, like, because his dad, BP, was was a photo play writer, the original, fo- writing the original photo plays before they even knew what to call, tell them. He said he sold his first photo play or one of his first photo plays for $500 which was a fortune there and they used the $500 to pay the doctor that delivered him in his <laughs> Upper East Side apartment <laughs> but he literally amazing. came from screenplays and we're always going to write screenplays but when he wrote What Makes Sammy Run in 1941 Louis B. Mayer and all the Hollywood producers were absolutely disgusted with it and they called a meeting with BP, his dad and they were so outraged that uh, Louis B. Mayer said he should be deported for writing this book. Yeah, Louis what, B. Mayer, he's about to take a heavy kick in the balls because he's depicted in a very negative light in the new movie by David Fincher, Mank. Yeah. Obviously made a lot of money, but he had a lot of famous quotes. Like, if you want to send a message, like, uh, use Western Union. Like, we don't put messages in our movies. And he would, like, punch out his filmmakers. You know, very hard-hitting, tough-hitting guy. But um, a lot of people felt like what makes Sammy run – was anti-Hollywood, and maybe it was, but there, I just found that there's this great line from it where the character of Sammy Glick, he's referred to as the frantic marathoner of life, and here's the quote, sprinting out of his mother's womb, turning life into a race in which the only rules are fight for the rail, an elbow on the turn, and the only finish line is death. And But he knew all these guys like Irving Thalberg who kind of lived their life according to those terms. And I think if you're going to go work like in an agency or, or like an entertainment lawyer, if you're going to try to actually climb the ranks of uh, any sort of corporate hierarchy in showbiz, what makes Sammy run is one of the best cautionary tales about the types of individuals you're going to encounter along the way. Um, yeah, I haven't read it yet. I'm looking forward to reading it. I mean, uh, when, I thought that was funny uh, when, it's, when he was saying – Louis B. Mayer about being deported. What he really meant was he should be deported from Hollywood. Yeah. You know, his dad said, "Yeah, why don't we deport him to Catalina Island?" You know, because, <laughs> yeah, it's like like ten miles away. Because <laughs> Hollywood, like uh, Bud Zuberg describes it, as they thought of it as like somewhere like Luxembourg, like a principality where the producers, like uh, Mayer, they they ran. You know, if they didn't want a story to appear in the newspapers, it didn't. You know, they run this ran the place like well, like, like a when Citizen Kane was being made. Louis B. Mayer was offering, because he was friends with William Randolph Hearst, was offering to buy the negative 
and bury the film and never have it be released because uh, just as a favor to his friend like this is how a lot of these studio heads conducted their affairs in the early in the late 30s early 40s and it's yeah it's it's why i mean bp was one of the founders although he didn't get any of the credit from it, and the guy who he made the deal with stiffed him but it was his idea to form united artists with charlie chaplin and mary pickford and all those original stars and then when in the in the documentary the five came back the guys, the, the the directors who came back, they'd had because they'd been through the war, they'd had enough of this bullshit of these kind of producers looking over them. So they started Liberty Films, which uh, I can't remember one of the films that the, one of the guys released. Uh, it might be, oh, I think it was It's a Wonderful Life. Absolutely. Actually, yeah, yeah. I, Frank, I, Frank Capra I, and Jimmy Stewart both wanted to make yeah. a movie together. And Jimmy Stewart said, look, I'll come back to Hollywood, but I'm not making any movies about my war record. Yeah. And But you see a a darkness creeps in both in his performance as well as in Frank Capra's filmmaking. If you look at the Frank Capra before World War II and the Jimmy Stewart before World War II and mm. the Capra and Jimmy Stewart after they they've, they've lived the lives of a hundred men in the, in the few years that they've been away. Mm, yeah. And uh, I mean, because it wasn't a commercial success that put the kibosh on Liberty film, but in terms of Bud Schulberg, like he, he, after what makes Sammy run, I, I think he, kind of, and that was like 41, but I think mm -hmm. he thought he was, he was out of the movie business then because, you know, no one would hire him. So he moved, he left Hollywood, he moved East, he moved to upstate New York somewhere, you know, I think, I think he kind of lived there on and off the rest of his life, sort of Martha's Vineyard kind of place. And he, and he thought he well, was going to be Dartmouth, in So he knows yeah. that New England culture very well if you I mean, he went to deerfield in america yeah. going to deerfield is like going to like bedford or allendale or one of those prestigious or, or any like any of those prestigious schools that you have in the in the uk but america has like you know our equivalent in new england whether you're talking about the ivy league schools or the boarding schools that feed kids in <clears throat> schools like groton and whatnot and so he was absolutely a part of that upper crust elite of New England. Yeah, yeah, he was. I mean, I think like, you know, he could kind of, he could, he could obviously, like all good writers, he could, he could, he could sort of seamlessly drift into other, you know, like bars full of gnarly longshoremen and things like that. You know, he, he had a stammer, which kind of, he said, disarmed quite a few situations when people would be sort of shouting him down or things like that. But, but, in the uh, just to draw an end to his war service, like he he, he was he was living in the west uh, east coast, he he signed up to the OSS. He went to the war, and like these guys who went away, their their careers were interrupted for five years. Like they they said they came back to Hollywood and nobody knew who they were, you know, because they'd sort of disappeared into the war. They also came back different people, you know. George Stevens didn't want to make comedies anymore, you know, and they and they they wanted to make different movies and. Uh, but Schulberg had to, you know, he, he he was in overseas until like spring 46 because he was involved in the Nuremberg trial and getting evidence for all that. So by the time he tidied everything up, so he, so he came back in 46, moved, went back to live on the East Coast. I can't remember the movie. He said he was approached by one of those, like Ford or someone to write a war movie. And he was like, you know, I'm. I've just spent five years. Yeah. <clears throat> John Ford's first movie I'm, coming back from World War II, that was like a narrative film, was uh, They Were Expendable. It, might, it okay. very well might have been that. It could have been that, yeah, because he'd worked with Ford in the OSS. And he just said, look, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I don't want to go into a fictionalized version of this thing that I've been doing. You know, I, I've done my duty. Yeah, I'm out of uniform now. I want to get back to my life such as it is. But he saw his life as being a novelist and, and picked up the, the novel he'd been working on before he went away. The harder they fall, 
But and then of course the disenchanted came out in 1950. But then he sort of pivoted again back towards movies and uh, started writing screenplays again and was drawn back in to write screenplays, uh, including probably the first one on our list here in the 1954. He sort of started with a high. going to keep still until they cut you down one by one? I mean, even if you only write one movie in your life, if you write On the Waterfront, you're going to be remembered because On the Waterfront for me is one of those essential movies that Hollywood has been associated with that kind of defines what what Hollywood does. It's kind of the essence of movies in so many ways, and it's one of the essential New York movies. I don't even know where to begin with although On the Waterfront, but I've been a fan for like 25 years now, and I've seen it many times over. But whether you're talking about the writing or Boris Kaufman's exquisite photography, or is it, well, I'm going to butcher his name, Elia Kazan, Elia Kazan, it's just Kazan. This is, I think this is Kazan's best movie. I mean, Marlon, Brand, Marlon Brando, who I kind of have grown to loathe and despise as a person for his antics behind the scenes i don't think he was ever better as an actor and i'm well aware that he made a movie called the godfather about uh 17 years later but i think this is brando's peak as a performer but you got carl Mal- malden and 
Lee J. Cobb and fucking one of my all-time favorite screen crushes with uh, Eva Marie Saint. Anyway, I'm gonna get tongue-tied even trying to talk about it because it's too much. How how would you like to start the conversation? But what is? All right, let's just start easy. What is on the waterfront about? Yeah, it's 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 funny that it's it's essentially the first film that he works on. I mean, I'm just looking at IMD. You know, in fifty, he came back from the war, and he worked. You know, like forty-five, he works on the Nazi plan. He essentially does the 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 VO for that, and then he works on TV, 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 and then in 1954, his first post-war screenplay is on the waterfront and on the waterfront is a movie uh it's based on a series of articles that was uh, was written by this journalist that was uh, was what was it called um it was a series of articles all about uh yeah crime on the waterfront by malcolm johnson and, and when you see i watched the movie again you know it's written by bud schulberg original story by bud schulberg suggested by crime on the waterfront malcolm johnson actually gets a credit in the opening titles and they ran this series of uh articles about corruption on the waterfront in new york with the teamsters and the unions and um obviously a lot of people read these stories they were gripped by them and you know they thought this obviously a lot of people thought this would make a fascinating film yeah i was actually in the i was in the location where they shot it last night because there are no movie theaters in new york right now so but i wanted to see mank so i had to go over to hoboken new jersey and so i took the uh the path train which goes underneath the hudson and it spits you out right there where all those piers are looking across the hudson at new york and you get this stunning view but i was like oh shit this is i mean precisely where (laughs) where they shot on the waterfront yeah, amazing. I, I, I hope open. Yeah, so not where for Sinatra's from. I mean, they were they wanted to shoot it in New Jersey, but the mob ran them out in New Jersey, so they ended up shooting it in Hoboken. Yeah, I mean, it's basically New York. It's a five minute, maybe a four minute train ride from my neighborhood in the village to get over there. I mean, and geographically, as the crow flies, I'd be amazed if it's even like a mile and a half away from where I live. So it's it's all part of that greater New York uh, environment. Yeah, and it's a story, if you haven't seen it, it's the story of a longshoreman called Terry who's a kind of failed boxer and a slugger. And uh, he works for this mob boss called Johnny Friendly who knocks off anyone who comes into his path and treats all the workers like shit. And uh, he gets subpoenaed and, you know, his family and everything get drawn into the struggle with the mob. And he has he has to wrestle with his conscience whether he should... Whether he should the dog in. That's all I rap, keep hearing about. Goddamn conscience. <laughs> the conscience stuff. He wrestles with his conscience whether he should turn in and uh, go state's evidence against these people who are exploiting all the working class um, dock workers or whether he should stay D&D, as they're supposed to say on the docks, deaf and dumb. And uh, his sort of tortuous journey to what he decides is the story of On the Waterfront. But it's about a million billion other things apart from that. You know, it's... Uh, it's just uh, one of the great American movies. I mean, I don't know if it's the greatest film ever made, but I'm sure it tops a couple of polls. Like, it's it's pretty up there. Yeah, it, it, when people talk about essential Hollywood films that define what 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 is it that Hollywood does, some people will say Casablanca, or some people will say, like, Lawrence of Arabia, or some people will say... There are a bunch of films that will come to mind, but... If you like Hollywood in the 50s, On the Waterfront is going to be in that conversation. It's like, you know, just to use a boxing analogy, since he was a boxing fan, when people are discussing the GOAT, there's no real way to prove who the GOAT was. It's just a matter of opinion. But when it comes to, like, pound-for-pound conversations, On the Waterfront is always going to be in the mix, as they say. 
Yeah, I watched it again last night just as a refresher, and I enjoyed it, but it's a film you have to watch with other people, I think. I mean, there's nothing like... Oh, I don't know if I've ever watched it with another soul. No, that's not true. I saw it at the Egyptian with Eva Marie Saint. Uh, She was there, like, in her late 80s to talk about it, and in a weird kind of grandmotherly way, she was still insanely beautiful and had that... It's that voice that she has, that the voice that she uses in North by Northwest, that very deep, very calm voice. She still had that even late in life. I was like, oh, my God, I love you. Yeah, it's and of course, it's and introducing Eve Marie Saint, yeah. as they say in the movie, like this is her discovery movie. And both this she and Bud debut. both win an Oscar coming right out of the gate. Yeah, incredible. And um, the the the. It's 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 um it's such a huge sprawl. But like I think the thing about I, yeah I saw it in the cinema in the IFI cinema a couple of years ago, and uh, I saw I saw it with a friend of mine's wife actually. But uh, there was nothing funny going on. It was just she was in town and I had to entertain her for the evening, and she'd never seen on the waterfront. And I was like, okay, uh, you've got to see this movie. And uh, we went along to see, and and I loved seeing a brilliant classic movie through the eyes almost of someone who's never seen. You know, you're like. You go, I'm so jealous. You're going to experience this for the first time. And uh, it is such a, and the cinema was packed in the pre-COVID day. There was not one single seat. And there were people standing all along the walls and all along the back. There were probably, they squeezed in probably an extra 20, 30 people who stood or sat in the steps to watch. And I thought, Jesus Christ, this movie is from 1954. Like, will they be, in 60 years time, will they be watching, you know, Drive or something like this again? I don't know. But, But there's something about it is so powerful. It's it's like, you know, Hitchcock said, you know, you should have three really great sort of peak scenes in a movie. And this movie with the Leonard Bernstein score, it has about 12 peaks. Like, yeah, in the, the opening when you just hear the music and then it's like, dun, 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 and you see the the heavies going out. And there's the first killing five yeah, minutes. All the in. bad guys on the rooftop, like, the like bad guys almost like there. hawks about to descend on the poor pigeons. Exactly. Like the hawks that are mentioned later. And then. Like, you know, they have the, the first stirrings of a bit of rebellion in the church. And suddenly the rocks come in the church windows and the guys are beating them over the head with baseball bat. And you're like, going, oh, my God, this is so exciting. And you're like, whoa, it's only 10 minutes into this two hour movie. You know, like this could be a peak in another movie. But you know that there's about nine more of these body shots that this movie is going to hit you with until you're just hanging onto the ropes like Marlon Brando at the end. And you're gasping for breath. And the fact that it is shot on location adds an incredible realism to it. Yeah, like there's something about something so beautiful about the shots where you have this. I keep looking for all this mist that somehow Boris Kaufman found, but just this ominous mist kind of wafting about on the playgrounds and the docks and that sort of thing. But it makes this world, maybe it's because I don't get up early enough, but uh, it makes this world seem so beautifully atmospheric. And yeah, Boris Kaufman, obviously, yeah, one of the one of the all time great DPs, and I think he he elevates this movie into the stratosphere. Absolutely, it looks stunning. The black and white is so crisp, and the I think I mean I, I know it was filmed in the winter and it's freezing cold, yeah. So that helps get that you know subway air, and obviously there's a bit of dry ice and stuff. But so when when Carl Malden is walking across the uh, the square in front of the church, and it's you know there's winos there around a brazier and stuff like that and it's so real and naturalistic it's like the bicycle thieves or something or when you're used to technicolor 1950s american movies it's it's like oh my god this is 
so gritty. But then counterpointed with that, you have the sort of melodrama of the, you know, intense romance and the drama and everything. And that great New York style of acting. This is not a Hollywood movie in terms of like the flavor, because these are all these are all people who are doing Tennessee Williams on Broadway and people who are doing like Streetcar Named Desire. And it's just a, a different flavor to a quintessential New York cast. And I guess probably half the people in this movie if you trace their ancestry back, they're probably fellow countrymen of yours. I feel like this is a very Irish-American movie in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what's the greatest Irish movie ever? It's on the waterfront, you know, I would think sometimes. It's not even Irish-American. You know, when, when Schuberg was studying it, he would go to these bars and they were just full exclusively of Irish longshoremen and they would be completely suspicious of him and he had to run out of a few of them. And if you think of it, Every character in the film is Irish. Edie Doyle is the sister of Joey Doyle, who's been murdered. You know, it's Terry Malloy. Um, Terry's brother calls himself Charlie the Gent, you know, because maybe he wants to be removed from his, I'm just a poor potato eater, roots, you know. Yeah. But he's not. He's, he's Charlie Malloy. And, of course, Father Barry is probably the coolest, toughest you know, Irish Catholic priest in movie history and like, you know, give me a beer and like, you know, always chain smoking and so on and so forth. But he is, he's not an effete guy in his robes who just wants to sit in the hallowed halls of his church. He's out in the streets doing the, uh, doing the real work. Yeah. I watched it last night and I thought, you know, Father Barry is the hero, hero of this movie, not Marlon Brando. It's Father Barry who makes, you know, the action come together. Yeah, He's, he's the, the catalyst. He's the, he's the Gandalf of, or whatever of this movie, you know, He's based on a real person, you know, like a lot of these people are. There, there was a documentary a couple of years. A friend of mine just reminded me of it this morning. Uh, there was a documentary on TG Cahar, which is the Irish uh, channel here in Ireland, called, oh, my God, Missioner Na Duggan. Oh, I've just butchered that in Irish. The Priest, the Mob, the Movie. Uh, and it was about a, 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 an actual uh, priest who, uh, his name was Jack Corridan. And he was from Kerry and he was moved to the uh, he was moved to the west side. Uh, you know, he's moved to the parish like he came from uh, a family is his, uh, his father, John Cardin, hailed from the parish of Dua near Listowel and emigrated to New York as a young man. His wife, Joanna Shanahan, known as Hannah, came from a small farm in Lysheen Bond near Castle Island. She was from a family of 11 children, of whom five sisters and a brother joined her in New York. And then he moved to they moved to New York and they had the son. 1945, Father Joe Cardin was assigned to the crime ridden New York waterfront, working in predominantly Irish guest of Hell's Kitchen and Chelsea, he was shocked to discover the brutal exploitation of the ordinary dock worker. And then he, you know, he 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 organized these groups against the mobsters, and that became part of the story. That's why the Father Barry character is so real and embodied and so tough, you know. And it, and it's I can imagine, I can imagine a, a, like a, a 12, 13, 14 year old Martin Scorsese seeing this movie and going. You know, I want to be Father Barry, not yeah. I want to be Terry Malone. I want to be, a you know, joining the seminary and deciding he's going to be a priest because if being a priest is as cool as that, I want to be a priest. Smoking, drinking beer. You know, he, he, he even punches Brando out in the movie. He's the only guy who punches him, well, obviously, apart from his brutal beating. But he punches him out. And, and the reason he punches him out, like the one moment in the movie when Father Barry loses his cool is when Brando says, you go to hell. Yeah. He says, what did you say to me? He goes, go to hell. And he punches him out and punching him out allows the guys to escape and warn him. And this is when he 
turns him on to uh, to informing. But yeah, and also he's doing it for his own good because Marlon Brando's he's got a gun in his hand and he knows no matter what happens that night, Marlon Brando's probably going to get killed if he doesn't uh, if he doesn't find a way to de-escalate the situation. Yeah, and he also feels guilt for it because it was him who forced brando to tell edie about his part in this and he's telling oh, her brilliant and scene then the boat when you get like off. the foghorn going and he's trying to talk over it and so she's like covering up her ears and screaming yeah. and crying and i love the way carl malden the way he kind of turns away and kind of lets his eyes flutter and he lights a cigarette but he's like he's like oh i don't know if i yeah did, did i get that right or you can see he's he's, he's racked with some some doubt of his own <laughs> and he, he's got he's got some big scenes he's oh, but his his big for me his biggest scene is after the death of the guy when they drop all the crates exactly. of liquor on him yeah. and he dresses down the entire waterfront come back to your church father boys this is my church and if you don't think christ is down here on the waterfront you've got another guest coming get out the dark father tell you don't do that who said you on boy let him finish every morning when the hiring boss blows his whistle, Jesus stands alongside you in the shape-up. He sees why some of you get picked and some of you get passed over. He sees the family men worrying about getting their rent and getting food in the house for the wife and the kids. He sees you selling your souls to the mob for a day's pay. The next bum that throws something deals with me. I don't care if he's twice my size. Now, what does Christ think of the easy money boys who do none of the work and take all of the gravy? And how does he feel about the fellows who wear $150 suits and diamond rings on you union dues and your kickback money? And how does he, who spoke up without fear against every evil, feel about your silence? Tell him about that. Just watch this. Did you see that? You want to know what's wrong with our waterfront? It's the love of a lousy buck. It's making love of a buck, the cushy job, more important than the love of man. It's forgetting that every fella down here is your brother in Christ. But remember, Christ is always with you. Christ is in the shape up, he's in the hatch, he's in the unit, he's kneeling right here beside Dugan. And he's staying with all of you. If you do it to the least of mine, you do it to me. And what they did to Joey and what they did to Dugan, they're doing to you. And you, you, all of you, and only you, only you with God's help have the power to knock them out for good. That is the New York acting, whether it's like Lee J, Lee J. Cobb, like, you know, obviously was famous for things like, um, like Death of a Salesman and Arthur Miller, but it's just a certain era of acting. And these guys were just the, the powerhouse. These were, the, these were the, the Mike Tysons of their era when it came to acting. Yeah, that scene, because... When, you know, K.O. Dugan says, finally, a consignment of some Irish whiskey from yeah. Ireland and he's sticking the bottle of Jemison into his windsheet. Or now you see the benefits of a, of a little guy in a big jacket kind of thing. And he's yeah. got, got all his booze and they drop the, the sling on him. And that speech he gives when he's like, you know, Christ is with you here. He's seeing the shake up. He's standing beside you in the morning, you know, and if you deny your fellow citizen that's a crucifixion and every time there's a shakedown that's a crucifixion and he's doing this and i only noticed it last night and because there's the, the mast and the sort of bars in the background there's the, literally a crucifix lit 
on the wall behind him, literally across while he's given this speech as he's been showered with eggs and beer cans and everything um, because he's made the the uh, the deal with K.O. Dugan that he's going to go all the way. And Absolutely. He, he, he delivers this unbelievable monologue and then he turns around to the corpse and says, okay, K.O., like, did I, did I, he did held I up his end of the bargain. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. It's incredible. Like every time, cause obviously Brando is brilliant, but yeah, every time I see it, I get more appreciation from Carl Malden and having known that it's based on this, uh, it's uh, real character, but you mentioned Arthur Miller there. And, and I actually, years ago, I read time bands. I don't know if you've read that. I've Arthur read Miller. the crucible when I was in ninth grade, when I was 15, but Death of a Salesman for me is my favorite just because I had this incredible audiobook version of it with Lee J. Cobb and Dustin Hoffman and a couple other people performing, I think, in the late 60s. But it's funny how um, Elia Kazan or Elia Kazan, however you say it, Kazan mm. and Miller had some words for each other and they viewed naming names in a very different light and they tackled the subject in very different ways and a lot of people feel like this film was Kazan's answer to Miller's criticisms of him for for naming names so you can kind of almost look at the on the waterfront and the crucible as like a compare and contrast about this witch hunt for uh communists and showbiz yeah some people think it's it's Kazan and Schulberg conniving to make a story in which being a snitch is seen as an honorable activist for a higher good. But Schulberg says that's bullshit. Like he had the story, like the story is the story. It's the story of Father Corrigan and how he inspired people to, you know, anyway, people will argue that back and forth forever. But Arthur Miller was supposed to write this movie, you know, he, he, he worked at the theater with Eli Kazan. And then when they were, when all these um, articles started coming out in the 40s, they, and, and the, you know, Kazan was also developing a screenplay with Arthur Miller, and he wrote a screenplay called The Hook, and it was all set on the waterfront, and it was all about, you know, so corruption. One arm every two inches longer than the other. That's from like 30 yeah. years of swinging the 30, hook. <laughs> are you sure you're not just moving this? Yeah. <laughs> he yeah, sells it, though. That actor's marvelous. He does. He's amazing. Um they had several meetings with Harry Cohen, who was who was the head of Columbia Studios, like Sam Spiegel produced the movie, but Harry Cohen was overseeing these. And Harry Cohen sent uh, Miller some, some notes, you know, and he said, do you know what would make this film brilliant? If the bad guys on the waterfront are all communists. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like the, um, what you call it, the, Hellraiser director when you know he's like talking to the producer you know this would film be great if it was a rock musical you know as opposed to a horror movie so Arthur Miller was appalled and said you know look I, you know this is ridiculous like these people aren't like it doesn't make any sense they're they're anti the opposite of coming if yeah. anything they're capitalists pure and simple yeah they're, and, like they're uh, capitalists taken to like the most hardcore extreme imaginable <laughs> yeah so he walked away from the project and Harry Cohen sent him a telegram saying it's funny how when we try and make the film more pro-American, you walk away. So he was like accusing of you know being unpatriotic by not uh, turning uh, Johnny Friendly into it's a It's funny communist. how like diehard partisans always assume they have like such moral certitude that uh, they think only their brand or only their idea of patriotism is the only form of patriotism that there is. And and because of that, we got 
Bud Schulberg's version of On the Waterfront, which is pretty good. I think we can admit. Yes, and then- yeah, I, I, I try not to use the word masterpiece casually or flippantly, but On the Waterfront, I think masterpiece certainly applies. And I think, I mean, even long before I was even really like totally obsessed with the movies, just emotionally, the movie just overwhelms you, just washes over you, and it has so much power and so much sweep to it. And it just, it just, it just races along and has so many extraordinary scenes. Like when Brando kicks in uh, Edie's uh, door and he's like, uh, like screaming. It's like, I, I can't remember the exact line, but it's like, I know what you want me to do, but I'm not going to do it. And he's like, conscience, yeah. conscience. That's all I've been hearing about. And I mean, that's just marvelous acting. And of course you have the great scene between Rod Steiger and Marlon Brando. Okay. How much you weigh, Slip? And you weighed 168 pounds. You were beautiful. You could have been another Billy Khan. That skunk we got you for the manager. He brought you along too fast. It wasn't him, Charlie. It was you. Remember that night in the garden, you came down my dressing room and said, kid, this ain't your night. We're going for the price on Wilson. You remember that? This ain't your night. My night, I could have taken Wilson apart. So what happens? He gets the title shot outdoors in a ballpark, and what do I get? A one-way ticket to Palookaville. You was my brother, Charlie. You should have looked out for me a little bit. You should have taken care of me just a little bit so I wouldn't have to take them dives for the short-end money. Well, I had some bets down for you. You saw some money. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Instead of a bum, which is what I am. Let's face it. It was you, Charlie. Okay. Okay. I tell him I couldn't find you. Ten to one, he won't believe me. Here. You take this. You're gonna need it. Marlon Brando, if you let him, he will fuck up your movie and sabotage it by being late or just going off the rails on the set. And apparently on that day, he kept improvising. And finally, Kazan just yelled, stop the shit, buddy. And that from that point on, they stuck to Schulberg's script. But yeah, Brando just... It's a weird thing where, I guess, madness and genius are close relatives. And he could do such amazing work, but he really needed strong, forceful directors to keep him focused and whether that's Coppola and the Godfather or Kazan here and on the waterfront but if you allowed him to wreck your movie he would take that opportunity pretty much every time yeah I I um read an interview with uh, Bud Schuberg and he he talked about that uh, that Brando wanted the whole scene taken out he didn't like it the whole scene you know I mean, like the, the, <laughs> yeah don't let don't never let your actors edit a movie yeah ever <laughs> he, he was he was uh he was on the roof, you know, they were on the roof of that building one day and, and he heard that Brando was having some grumbles about this scene. Everyone else loved it. They thought it was the, and, and what I, what I love about that scene, you know, it just, whatever the previous scene is, I can't even remember. It's in a bar or something and then it cuts 
and Brando sits down beside Charlie and goes, hey, I'm glad you picked me up, Charlie. I want to talk to you. You know, and we're into the scene. There's no picking up the tech. You know, they just get into it and then it ends. And uh, they were sitting on the rooftop and uh, he said, oh, what's your problem? You know, everyone seems to like the scene. And, he, and he's like, look, my problem is, okay, we're having this back and forth. And then the guy pulls a gun out on me and I'm still waffling on about, you know, I could have been this. And like, you know, if a guy pulls a gun on you, you're not going to do that. And Kazan jumped in. To, this is where you need the brilliant director. And he said, well, what if you just push the gun away? Just, you know, push it away, you know, like with a disgusted sort of, and Brando thought, well, wow, okay, that, that works. Now I love it. And with that solved, they went on to do the, the, the scene. And it's, oh, yeah. I mean, it no, might be as fine as as an actor. Like you don't understand. I could have been contender. I could have had class. And I mean, it's just, it's marvelous writing. It's marvelous acting. The music behind is, is extraordinary. Everything just comes together. You can just show that scene as just a, a showcase on the, the art and craft of acting. Yeah. And it's so like, it's obviously done in a studio, not a prop, you know, it's just so bare bone. Remember that night in the garden, you came to my dressing room and said, Hey kid, it's not your night, not my night. Charlie, I could have taken that guy apart. It's just so, it's so gripping and beautiful. And then, of course, it's like all the most amazing, you know, it, it doesn't work if it's just a load of flim Also, flam. it doesn't work unless you have Schulberg writing it because Schulberg knows about boxing. Like when exactly. he's, all the scenes where they're referencing his boxing career, the authenticity and the detail, it's a taste of things to come with uh, The Harder They Fall a few years later when we, with Bogey, but obviously the novel The Harder They Fall had come out a couple years prior, but anything and everything related to boxing in this film has this gritty stamp of authenticity because Bud Schulberg was a, uh, I can't, what was it? He got some sort of honorary award. Yes, He was inducted into the International Boxing Hall of Fame in 2002 in recognition for his contributions to the sport. So yeah, he, he knew whereof he spoke. He wrote a book on boxing just called uh, Sparring with Hemingway. I mean, yeah, Schulberg was obsessed. Yeah, I mean, he was, his, his, when, when, when he went to um, Hollywood when he was six, his dad used to bring him to the fights when he was six years of age. And he was going to the fights from then for the rest of his life. And uh, so, yeah, when Brando's just, you know, the copper is asking him, oh, was that, was that a hook, you know, that you hit him with? He goes, I didn't use the hooks. Strictly a shot puncher, and he starts getting into the stance. Oh, and it's, it's great. so believable. That's before the, Marlon Brando started eating ice cream, and he was uh, yeah. still uh, virile and beautiful and, and a physical oh, yeah. specimen. But notice how one of the cops early in the movie is Martin Balsam's uh, screen debut. And obviously, he would later on be in things like Psycho and 12 Angry Men. But for Martin Balsam fans out there, he's a, a young, fresh faced youth who's not even like the main cop, he's like the backup cop. So many Marvel's actors in this, and so many great moments, like just little details, like when Brando takes him. Um, Eva Marie Saint to a bar and he's teaching her how to drink a shot of uh, bourbon and she, mm. she she kind of sips it she's like mm, and she makes this uh, very polite mm. expression it's like no like down the hatch like all at once and she does it and she has this exasperated look on her face which is like a mix of like surprise and horror and just she's overwhelmed but every time I see that moment I just scream with laughter. Anyone who likes whiskey can appreciate the, that mm. moment. But it's some of the best acting of the movie where you have like agony and awe kind of all stirred together all at once. And I just love that bit. It's beautiful. But it's not like, oh, wow, I'm so woo. You know, she's just, she's, it's, she sells it. Well, she's also trying to also disguise the fact that it, like, it's an mm. involuntary response when you react to whiskey like that. But you can tell she's mm. trying to like keep her game face on. But in spite of that, it's all coming through. And anyway, it's, it, she's managing to evoke so many different emotions all at once, which is just, it's extraordinary stuff. 
but also as well, um, I was just thinking that the the, the famous Brando Steiger scene. Apparently, Steiger was pissed off with it because Brando, once he'd done his takes, he just left for the day, so and he didn't fought, do that. They thing. had a huge falling out of it, and they didn't behind. speak to each other for years. And that is yeah. that's an, yet yet another example of Marlon Brando being a prima donna, behaving yeah. inappropriately on the set from basically the time of this movie up through Island of Dr. Moreau in the '90s. I mean, you could write books upon books upon books about all the lousy things that Marlon Brando did on the set to mm. disrupt movies, alienate people, make enemies, etc. I almost want to stop learning about Marlon Brando because it always it lowers my opinion of him as a professional, even if I have mm. the utmost regard for him as an artist and as a, as a, as a craftsman. And but we haven't really given Lee J. Cobb a proper shout yet, and I think. Some of those early scenes, like with like the Teamsters and like the, this like pool hall slash office, I mean, he clearly is the boss. He is the alpha. He is the the apex predator in this room. And the way he's massaging Marlon Brando and like throwing punches at him, and the way he's bossing mm. everybody around, man, Lee J. Cobb's his finest moment, obviously, is playing Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman. Mm. But this has got to be a close second. Yeah, well. Lee J. Cobb is another one who named names to the House on American and, and Arthur Miller talks about it in Time Bends and you'd expect Miller to be bitter about it. But he's like, it kind of, you know, I mean, I think because Time Bends is biography, Arthur Miller's biography, and it's it's really fascinating because, you know, the guy was married to Marilyn Monroe and was involved with a lot of interesting stuff in the 50s, uh, of course. But he says, Lee J. Cobb, you know, he wasn't political. He went to these meetings because his friends were going to them. Like, you know, he, he wasn't a political animal. But like all, a lot of them, he was drawn into this whole thing. Yeah, he wasn't Dalton Trumbo. Like some people were genuine believers. Mm. And other people, it's just, it was like going to like a mixer in college. And it was like, oh, yeah, I mean, like Sterling Hayden. Like, I think he popped in for a few. But he was like, yeah, I'll name names. And of course, he got mm. semi-blacklisted as a result. But what really annoyed me was uh, decades later when uh, Kazan was getting his honorary Oscar and they're showing people in the Hollywood community at the Oscars, some of whom refused to stand. And it's like Martin Scorsese's presenting the award. He's got the Martin Scorsese seal of approval. If if he's cool with Martin Scorsese, he's cool with me. But he's got Jim Carrey uh, staying in his seat. And you just see these people with a superficial knowledge of politics and history making these, what in their mind must be some sort of bold gesture. And I, it just... This is the kind of stuff that drives people crazy about Hollywood. People who are completely full of shit taking themselves way too seriously. <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, when I think about that, it's like I was talking to someone today about how if you've ever been in a fight, you know, like if you've ever been in a situation where everything goes tits up, you never know how you're going to react. You know, sometimes uh, the people who are always really aggressive Oh, everybody thinks they're going to be Clint Eastwood, but most people yeah. just freeze up and make a stupid a lot, looking face. A lot of people go into their shell and yeah. a lot of people, you know, like the re the reactions are never what you think. So, you know, and I've witnessed this firsthand. And I think when you see a Jim Carrey, well, I would never have done that. You're like, well, that's easy to fucking say. You know, I mean, you don't know. But, but yeah, as, when you've got a hundred million dollars in the bank because you just came off this hot streak of like, you know, all these Ace Ventura movies and whatnot. But in the early 50s, yeah, you got you got to be willing to walk a mile in someone else's shoes and try and see things from their point of view. And yeah, I have I have no problems with Kazan and uh, with the decision he made whatsoever. 
Well, the well, the problem, as you say, like they did it in South Park, is like you know the idea that you know the worst people in the world should be the people that decide how you live your life. You know, yeah. there's the episode where Rob Reiner goes down there and you know he's giving out to people for smoking he's and having a beer after work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. he's like coughing you know. audibly from across the room because there's this guy with like you know like a trucker sitting at the bar smoking a cigarette and meanwhile he's like stuffing sandwiches in his face every other sentence when, when south park decides to fuck you up and take you down nobody does it better and rob reiner yeah i mean i love this is spinal tap and i love stand by me and or princess bride but god damn he's a self-righteous asshole in so many other ways in uh in the modern day yeah, I, I saw this interview. I found this interview. Uh, it was on a thing, a BBC thing called Pebble Mill with this famous BBC journalist called Valerie Singleton. And it was uh, Elia Kazan in 1976. And she was asking him about naming that, you know, and she was, you know, it was like she obviously felt she was giving him the opportunity to atone by saying, do you regret what he did? And he's like, no, I'd do it again tomorrow. And that enraged her far more than if he had thrown himself you know it's there, there's a certain ritual that you need to go you know i do bad there's a modern thing and i throw myself at the court of public opinion the and apology I tour on social the media coming yeah. back to the public hat in hand begging for forgiveness exactly so you know never apologize never back down. you know for someone to just say actually no fuck that i do it again tomorrow and i do it you know look with interest so enraged her, you could see it. You know, it's just, it's just it doesn't compute. You're not supposed to. Well, not also, the way it's like the forced them. compliance with groupthink. I, mean, I think nothing's more loathsome than groupthink, even if it's groupthink that I agree with. I don't want people to say, hey, every child in America should be required to study Orson Welles' films. Like, maybe it's a good idea. Like, maybe it'd be, some of them would fall in love, but they don't force people, but forced compliance. When you don't allow people to disagree and have their own point of view, I, I feel like you almost need to, just in spite, of the people trying to push you around. I find myself sometimes almost like saying and thinking things just in spite of people whose personalities I find <laughs> particularly annoying. Well, of course, you know, it's, it's been antagonistic, being an iconoclast, you know, sometimes it's, it's fun just because, you know, you want to rub people up, you know? Um, yeah. yeah, I, I, I was, uh, I was reading something, uh, about, um, uh, about Brando, you know, we're talking about Brando, and oh yeah, what I want to say about the but the about the scene between the two of them, it doesn't work if it's just a character piece explaining Terry's motivation, why he feels he's a loser, why he feels you know something. Without it's there for that, but it's also there to drive the plot. Plot and character are both playing in the scene. We see. You take me to the garden at the end of the scene, and the camera swings up to the guy. We're, uh oh, Charlie's fucked now. Yep. They're going to take him. You know, it doesn't work as pure character. It's a, it's it's a pure character piece, but the scene is there to drive the plot. You know, the two of them are working at the same moment. You know, and for all his terrible behavior, Brando is still he's in, he's in another world. You know that amazing scene where she drops the glove and they're going through the uh, children's his playground. Are profound, yeah. The way he picks up the glove and starts messing with the fingers, it's just starts that's picking at it. Yeah, that's Brando at his most sublime and poetic as a performer. Once again, it's he has all these incredible instincts, but then you need the lion tamer. That you need someone like Kazan who can rein them in and find a way to put all those instincts to good use. Yeah, there's a, there's a quote from Bud Schulberg, and he said, uh, I got along with Brando pretty well. And a week before they started shooting, uh, they went for, through a walk through Hoboken. 
with Brando in his Terry, Terry Malloy outfit. And uh, he said he walked through the entire town as Terry Malloy. I didn't think he could do it. I thought the people would recognize him, but I'll be damned. We walked through the entire town. We went into bars and uh, they walked past a girls' school and the girls were coming down the steps. And I thought, okay, young people, surely they'll know him. But Marlon just went on being Terry Malloy and they thought he was a long shot. Because he man. wasn't dressed up like, the, what was it, the, the wild thing where he's, uh, or, yeah, it's the wild thing. Is that his biker movie thing, where yeah. he's got like the, yeah. the leather jacket and the hat where he was like the big dream boat. It's kind of a ridiculous movie, but, uh, <laughs> but it made him very much like the Elvis of his, of his era. Oh, but it's funny, but so many great lines about, um, or great details about Bud Schulberg's experience making this. I found this note from, I think I found it on IMDb Trivia, but apparently Sam Spiegel, the producer, is a really good producer and made a lot of great movies with David Lean, but he was constantly pestering Bud Schulberg with notes and rewrites and suggestions. And apparently one night, Schulberg's wife woke up at 3.30 in the morning and saw uh, Schulberg getting dressed kind of angrily. She says, what are you doing? He says, I'm driving to New York. To kill Sam Spiegel. <laughs> I thought it was just fantastic. Well, uh, funny you should mention Elvis because that story about Brando just reminded me of uh, a story Steve Binder tells, kind of almost the opposite of that, like like very similar. Before before they were doing the '68 special with Elvis, Elvis was like, "Oh, my life is so terrible. I can't walk down the street. Everyone recognized me and all that." And Steve Binder said. Things have moved on a little bit, Alva. I'm not 100% sure you should, you know, let's go for a walk. And he, I can't. He'd been living in a bubble. Yeah, girls were yeah. not throwing their underwear at him anymore. So he, they, went, they went out to like hate Asprey and stood out. And he said, Steve Binder said it was embarrassing. Elvis started talking really loudly and nobody recognized him. They just yeah. walked out. And that's when he decided, okay, I need to do this comeback special. Yeah, and you it know? worked. But, I mean, in the 70s, he, rega- he regained his, uh, his panty-throwing uh, status. But yeah, when he was making movies in the 60s, he kind of... F- fell out of um kind of mainstream pop culture and didn't realize that the movies he was making were not necessarily kind of in step with the uh, prevailing trends at that time absolutely well i think um i read a quote where bud schulberg did address the uh, whole idea that he was just making the movie to sort of um make peace with the fact that he'd named names the mccarthy trials and he just said there's no truth in that full stop my work was to reveal what was happening on the docks i know what my motivation was and uh, anyway that's his people can take well, it or they can leave it i think more than anything don't give bud schulberg notes and revisions on his books when they had the audacity to suggest changes to what makes Sammy run for political reasons i mean I, I, it just shows that he was a storyteller had principles, and I think the fact that he reacted to their notes and suggestions the way he did, my uh, my opinion of him is goes a little higher. And, it was, and my oh. opinion of him is already about as high as they can get. Well, my opinion of him is 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 stellar, and I think you know, like I say, this is an Irish film, or certainly an Irish American film, and he captures the voice and the character, and he did that by spending nearly a year going to these really dodgy bars in Hell's Kitchen and listening to the the way people reacted and, and what was obviously also very in, in you know we don't think of it now is religion this film is such a Catholic film and the whole thing about Catholicism and as you see it in Scorsese is it's about redemption you know and like this film like this is the beginning of a Brando period where he would be brutally tortured at the end of every movie he was in because he just he, 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 
you know, it was like he loathed what he was doing. You know, he found acting not to be a manly profession and he wanted to be punished for it, like our Lord was punished with the crown of thorns. And at the end, when he's brutally beaten by the thugs, you know, and he's, you know, he's saying, I'm glad I, what I did to you. You take away the pistoleras and a short cabbage and you're nothing. And they go at each other. And then he has to, he's brutally covered in blood and he's to walk the, the walk back uh, all along the docks and everyone's saying, no, no, let him, let him go by himself. It's like one of Christ's trials that he has to get through. He has to, he has to cross the desert, you know, and then he makes it and stands up and the guy says, let's go to work. And the film's out. I mean, it's just unbelievably powerful. But, uh, you know, then in um, One-Eyed Jacks, you know, he gets whipped and then, then it starts to be almost contractual in all his movies that he's viciously brutalized in all of them. But one of the things uh, that struck me, like I started seeing this time all these religious allegories. There's a famous allegory in the in the Bible. I was raised Catholic, uh, sort of a lapsed Catholic, but there's a famous uh, allegory called the repentance of Peter. You know this story after Christ is condemned, you know, and Peter Peter says, you know, well, I, you know, I'm the most loyal one. I'm, I'm, and someone says, is it Christ or Jesus spoke to him and says before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. After Terry gives his evidence, he comes in with the copper and he says, you guys are following me around like a canary or something. And one of the coppers says, well, you know, if it looks like a duck kind of thing. And that's number one. And then number two, he's walking up the stairs. He goes, hey, shorty. And the guy just blanks him completely. Yep. Number two. And then number three. And the guy who he had most- been friends with Edie's brother, he gets murdered. And even he, who should be on his side, thinks he's yeah. betrayed their values. Yeah. And then the third the third betrayal is the cruelest of all, where the kid from the, the Golden Warriors throws the bird at him, a pigeon for a pigeon, while he's sobbing, crying. And he goes in. And in the Bible, after the third uh, denial, the rooster crows. But in On the Waterfront, he hears... And that's the equivalent of the rooster crowing. And, you know, in, in the Bible, before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. And it's like a reference, like he's, 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 subs- he's subsumed not just the language of these Irish American or first or second generation, but their entire culture and Catholic symbolism. And then he has to go and be reborn. He has to be, after he's denied three times, he has to be crucified and we've already heard lots of talk about crucifixion. And then he's reborn in that final scene and he walks in and, uh, yeah, just the amazing scene where the shutter comes down and the end sits on it. Wow, so powerful. I love it. Yeah. Is it, if you're a movie lover, this is as good as it gets. Absolutely. But, yeah, like yourself, I could talk about it all day, but I guess we better move on. All right. You know? Let's switch gears to The Heart of the Fall from 1956. Eddie, you're a big talent. You're a real, real big talent. I used to read your column every day in the newspaper, and then when the newspaper folded, I missed it. Yeah, well, let's skip the build-up. Get down to the main event. All righty. I got a position I want you to fill. Now, it's not the usual press agent's routine. It's an important job that calls for an important man that pays important money, and I think you're important. Interested? Well, I didn't come here to work out. All righty. Look, the fun... George! What's he doing? Getting ready, Mr. Benko. Well, tell him to hurry it up. Yes, sir. Okay. Eddie, the fight game in this country is falling apart. The boys are all getting too smart. 
They all want to go to college. They want to become doctors. They want to become lawyers. They don't want to fight for a living. So I sent a couple of the boys abroad to find me some new material. I think they came up with a winner. He just got off the boat this morning. The guy's name is uh, Toro Marino. Toro Marino? I never heard of him. Well, I told you he's new, didn't I? Hey, Mr. Grandy? Mr. Grandy, this is Mr. Willis, a very famous sports writer who's going to make Toro famous. Oh, it's a pleasure to meet you, senor. Likewise. Well, I don't think we should keep Mr. Willis waiting, do you? No, no, senor. All right. That's Spick. He's Toro's manager. I had to bring him from Argentina because Toro's lost without him. How does this deal pay? I want you to stay and take a look at it first. If the money's not right, why waste our time? All righty. Two fifty a week. No, no, no. no. Wait. Uh, you'll have to up it. All right, so you'll have an open-end expense account. Now, Leo here, he's the bookkeeper, writes the checks, charges it off to business, and for you it's tax-free. All right, I'll take a look at him. Bogey's final screen performance before he died of cancer. If you are a fan of MMA or boxing or wrestling or any sort of combat sports, I strongly encourage people to check out the book because anything you love about the movie, A, there's more, but B, it's just darker. Hollywood in the 50s was not quite ready to go all in on the details that Schulberg provides in the novel, especially when it comes to like some of like, like the orgies that they attend. It's, the novel's just so much grander and so much more ruthless and so much more depraved in a lot of ways. However, the spine and the DNA of the story is all there in the movie, and it is a very solid adaptation, although Bud Schulberg sadly did not write the adaptation. So there's a lot of good stuff, though, that there's a lot of great... Like, the essence of Schulberg is still there, even if he was not directly involved with the film. Directed by Mark Robson, who directed Seventh Victim, one of my favorite... Not really a, it's not really a horror movie, but suspense thrillers of the 1940s. But we got Rod Steiger back. And here, we actually do have that contrast where Rod Steiger is going up against Humphrey Bogart, who is part of that older generation. And Humphrey Bogart was less than impressed by Rod Steiger's generation. He thought it was a bunch of mumbling nonsense. And, you know, he might have he might have had a point... Bogey is still shows that he's still got all of his chops as a, a as a Hollywood icon in this film, and it's while it's not, I wouldn't place it up there with like To Have and Have Not or Casablanca, but it, it, this is a good one to uh, wrap up his career with. Yeah, I really enjoyed it actually. I mean, it's not on the waterfront, but I I recently had a sort of mini Bogart. You see, I've got all these DVDs that I picked up when I was living in China years ago. Like you could buy them really cheap, and I've just got. I've got hundreds of them and I, and I bought loads of bogey movies and I, so I was, I was thinking I've got this uh, harder they fall in the house somewhere and I was rooting through it. And while I was there, I picked like a pull at Sirocco and uh, you know, the desperate hours and you know, sort of lesser well-known bogey movie. And I've never ever seen a bogey movie that I haven't liked, that I haven't found entertaining, even if he's the most entertaining thing in it. You know, I, I just, I can watch Bogart in absolutely anything. High Sierra I watched recently. That's damn good. Yeah, Raul, Raul, Raul Walsh is Raul Walsh. Uh, one of the giants. So good. And I mean, in this, I think Bogart is great. He's like mean, he's nasty. I mean, sort of like we mentioned in The Big Sleep, the, the, the few bits in the film that don't work are the physical bits because Bogart was, like Chandler would say, he could be tough with his eyes. He could be tough with his look. He could be tough by threatening you, sneering at you, laughing at you. As soon as it does get into physical fisticuffs, there's, there's, there's a scene. And also he's kind of, he's on his way out and, you know, he's quite yeah, ill. He's and diagnosed with cancer in January of 56 and this movie was mm. filmed in late 55. Yeah. So there's a scene where he has to push one of the gangsters to the side. Your man goes, oh, you know, it's it's just it's always the least convincing. Like 
that that's because Bogart's a tough guy in that he just he would just with a withering word he'd completely disarm you and you'd be gone huh so uh, that doesn't really work. I mean, I saw Red Schulberg saying that. Uh, he was interviewed about it. And he said this would have been in Bogart's mean and bitter period, apparently. And he said, yeah, he could be na- very nasty. I mean, you watch like, things like In a Lonely Place or Kane Mutiny yeah. or Desperate Hours. But yeah, he, Bogey, he was not afraid to be sad. I guess the, maybe the beginning of his beat, mean and nasty period is like Treasure of the Sierra Madre, where he just goes completely fucking insane <laughs> in the yeah, best amazing. possible way. But, Absolutely love yeah. that movie. He didn't have to be the hero or the good guy in every movie. Oh, but I just found his line about Rod Steiger. He said, um, he apparently he confided to a friend, this scratch your ass and mumble school of acting doesn't please me. That's how he summed <laughs> up Rod Steiger's approach. <laughs> Well, that that was kind of like the uh, Sinatra approach when he worked with Brando on Guys and Dolls. You know, he, he he called him Mumbles. You know, and he'd say like, you know, I'm done for the day. Mumbles probably needs another hundred takes. You know, which, which, which reminds me, I don't want to backtrack and talk about on the water again. But Sinatra was supposed to play the Brando part. You know, he he even Paul Newman was considered like the Brando didn't want to do it, but the best way to get him to commit is to make it make it known that one of his up-and-coming rivals might get the part instead. Because obviously in yeah. the 50s, like you had Montgomery Clift, you had James Dean, you had Paul Newman, you had Marlon Brand, you had all these this new breed of heartthrobs slash brilliant actors, and they were all fiercely competitive. Oh, yeah. He said, he said for, for, you know, uh, Sinatra did not handle rejection well. He was completely mad. He, wanted, he screamed at me, practically came to physical blows with Sam Speed. And Sinatra in the 50s uh, is good. I mean, you watch like um, oh, yeah. uh, From Here to Eternity and things like that. I mean, Sinatra, he had some chops. I think it's the year after From Here to Eternity, or it's around the same time. So he, he had chops. He had the, rep, you know, everything, the man, the golden arms. He had an Oscar from, for, from Here to Eternity, did he, did he not? He did, yeah. He did, yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, I think probably Bogart, uh, a little bit of the HUAC might have niggled with Bogart, with Schulberg as well. The fact that he had testified and Bogart was quite public about being anti all that. So Yeah, Bogart and Houston and Bacall and a couple of people got on a plane together to fly to mm. Washington to try to stand up for all the writers and filmmakers who were about to be placed on the on the blacklist. And it was a very ugly scene. Yeah, so Bogey was was not a fan of uh, any, any of the pro- proceedings and really tried to go to bat for these writers but it basically would take a decade before a lot of these writers like dalton trumbo would start getting hired again on things like spartacus mm, yeah so schulberg said like uh, bogart would ask him questions he'd ask me questions about boxing and when i would answer he would ridicule what i was saying he wasn't easy to get along with now as we've said if anyone knows anything about boxing it's bud schulberg but yeah. i think bogart was just going to be sort of stubborn and, and ornery with him and what what i liked about this film I have the book. I bought the book. I haven't read it yet. But, um, I mean, if it's a Bud Schilberg book, it'll, it'll be great. But, uh, and, and I, you know, I think, like you're saying, like like Shane and like a lot of these books or the shootest and stuff like that, I can imagine that the book is meaner and nastier and dirtier. Than, but you still get some great exposés and tricks to trades. Like there's the guy. Yeah, so give fight, us the fight. premise for people, because I think a lot of people have not seen this. I think a lot, even a lot of hardcore bogey fans have not seen it. Even if they see that shot in Breathless when John Paul Belmondo looks at the poster for it and says, bogey, and it's, yeah, it's a yeah. poster for the heart of they fall. But uh, I think uh, this one flies under the radar for a lot of people. So what, what is the overall gist of the story? Yeah, the heart of they fall is that Bogart is like a, a sort of, old school like uh 
like what's his name, not Dalton Trump, D- Damon Runyon type, you know, journalist who writes about, you know, he's, he's, he's the peak of the boxing sports world, but he's kind of fallen on hard times and he gets a call from Rod Steiger. He's pretty skint and he gets a call saying he wants him to join this tour as like a PR fluffer for this boxer that they found down in Argentina, who's this huge seven foot giant who, who couldn't break an egg. He can't box, exactly. but they're going to try to turn him into this giant threat through bullshittery yeah. and fixed fights. He, uh, he uh, couldn't box his way out of a paper bag. He couldn't blow skin off rice pudding, as my uh, old uh, teacher, <laughs> teacher used to say, a gym teacher. And he, and, and he essentially is hugely impressive looking athlete, but a terrible boxer with a glass jaw. And uh, Bogart watches his first fight, and re- or even his first sparring, and realizes this guy is out of his league and he should really send him home but he needs the money and he makes the pact with the devil with the gangster rod steiger that he'll go along with it for the money and that he'll, he'll big this guy up and that they'll you know if they big him up enough then they'll get a few decent audiences and along the way and they'll all make a lot of money and everything will be happy everyone will be happy but it's the boxing world and of course that doesn't happen people people and it's incredible seeing how while bogey is a bit of an idealist and has all these values that when he decides to compromise and go to work for this total scumbag he's almost better at it because he knows the boxing world so when he knows all the tricks of the trade that when it comes to all the shortcuts you need to employ in order to create the illusion of this fighter being bigger he already knows all these tricks because he's been writing about him for so long so it makes him strangely adept at doing the things that as a writer he would have condemned yeah you, you do get like to the see chicken wire trick the chicken wire trick is great yeah the indian guy is fighting and he's been paid to throw the fight but he's like i was told no one would be here all my family are here so I, i'm not going to throw the fight and this throws a major spanner in the works of their promotion of whatever he's called, Il Gigante or whatever the, the, the big boxer is called. So Bogey just says, look, do the chicken wire trick. Put a bit of chicken wire under your gum shield. The guy hits you. You're going to be bleeding. Referee stops the fight. So they have all these underhand ways of like he can lose the fight then but still keep his honor intact and it means another victory for our man. And everything. Yeah, So you do get to see the behind the scenes and dressing room scenes that are that are pretty great, even if it isn't as nitty gritty as, as it as it is. Well, there's in the novel. one scene that's particularly gritty that I'm amazed even made it in there. But you get the uh, the, uh, the documentary footage of a washed up fighter living on Skid Row after hundreds of fights, and it's a real fighter, and he can barely talk. And it's, it's uh, Joe Greb, and in real life he had 119 fights and he had irreparable brain damage. The fact that they're willing to include that. It just it's a it's a little dose of reality that I feel like is very appropriate given the way that Schulberg uh, approached these things. And I know that at one point Schulberg was attached as a writer on the script. However, he wanted to be able to work from home a lot, like the the story you told about uh, mm. Raymond Chandler trying to work from home. And Harry Cohn said, "Absolutely not. This is not going to happen." Blah blah blah. And so because uh, apparently also. Uh, Cone and BP Schulberg had been pretty nasty enemies. And anyway, oh, yeah. so that's one of the reasons Bud Schulberg walked away from this film is that he was uh, having some beef with Harry Cone. And I think it was Harry Cone, he was so despised and so hated and reviled in the industry that when he died and he had this giant funeral, 
apparently, according to legend, somebody asked uh, Billy Wilder, like, oh my God, like, I thought everybody hated him in Hollywood. Like, how come so many people are here? This Billy Wilder famously said, oh, first rule of show business, give the people what they want. <laughs> Which I thought was great. Yeah. Yeah. Class. Uh, I, yeah. I know um, BP have made enemies with uh, Thalberg and Cohen. And, uh, yeah. I think they both basically tried to trash his career. And neither of them had ever forgiven him for what makes Sammy run anyway. So that was why he was off the project. And you kind of get that, that it's not a Bud Schilberg screenplay and it's not an Eli Kazan product, Sam Spiegel production. It's a little bit B. It's B, but it's very solid B and very oh, enjoyable yeah. B and very Absolutely. watchable B. And yeah, I've seen it twice. Now. I guess I first saw it years ago after I read the novel and I was like, ah, they didn't really go for it. But it's, it's, the, it's Hollywood in the 50s. If they'd made this in the 70s and John Huston had directed it, well, holy shit, it would have been quite a different thing. I mean, just sure. watch Fat City and you see what he's willing to, uh, where he's willing to go as a storyteller. It's just sadly the moment for the movie. It wasn't ideal for this particular time, but the novel's there, and warts and all for people to enjoy. And it's an it's an extraordinary read. If you didn't have lofty expectations going into it, you're going to find it to be a wildly enjoyable flick. And especially there's some really scary scenes. Like there's this incredible heavyweight who recently got knocked out and he went into a coma for hours. And as it turns out, he's got basically like a broken neck that's been never properly addressed. Mm -hmm. And so he goes into a fight with El Gigante and he immediately starts bleeding out of his nose and he immediately and he collapses and then he ends up dying. But this is not a movie that's trying to glorify boxing, nor is it trying to condemn it. It's just a movie that and a story that acknowledges the really dark side of the business and the fate of a fighter, more often than not, is a very bleak one. They they have very little money at the end. They have all these horrible health problems. And it's something that the combat sports industry wrestles, wrestles with and grapples with to this day because most fighters do not retire on top. Most fighters retire kind of destitute and in, a, in really sad shape. Only a few of them walk away at the, at the peak of their career. Yeah, I mean, that whole episode is, is really tragic. And, of course, it makes... El Toro, oh my God, I don't know my own strength. And like, no, you're not strong. You're a terrible fighter. The guy was on his way out anyway, you know. Yeah, he had been killed in his previous fight. It just he needed that one last tap to, to tap. finally go down. Yeah, I mean, you know, the guy who gets out of it, El Toro gets out of it pretty sweetly at the end, not to ruin the movie. But yeah, I agree. It's, it's like if you're, if you're into bogey movies, like bogey wouldn't be in anything that wasn't of a certain quality. You know, it's kind of B-A- a minus b plus and it's just in that in that zone anything like uh any of bogart's it's not it's not in a lonely place it's not quite that quality but really entertaining you know and i love it when he dresses down el toro and it's like you're not even a 10th rate fighter you don't even fight hard enough to bust an egg and he brings in a washed up over the hill fighter who now is just a trainer a guy in his 50s yeah you really believe you killed dundee don't you with his hand I killed him. Yeah, you really believe that? Well, let me tell you something. You couldn't kill anybody unless you had a gun. What you mean? Just what I said. You can't punch. You're a fake. You never hurt anyone. I punched, they go boom, 26 men. Every one of them a fix or a pushover. I do not believe you. I don't care what you believe. It's the truth. You're not even a 10th rate fighter. You're what they call a bum. I know bum. I trade hard and I fight hard. I do not know my own strength. Leave all those lies I write about you. 
Nick Benko paid me to make up those fairy tales so people would think you couldn't be hurt. Go and get hurt, Del Toro. Oh, any saloon fighter could wipe up the floor with you. Go away, Eddie. Go away. George, you don't know your own strength, but I'm going to show you what a bum you really are. George, how old are you? I'm 53, Mr. Your daddy's 53, a broken-down old war horse, but he can still beat your brains out. I want you to belt him. Let him know what it feels like to get hit for once in his life. I can't do it, Mr. Willis. You like him, don't you? Yes, sir, I, I do. Then you'd be doing him a favor. He thinks he's King Kong. He won't believe the truth. I want you to belt some sense into him. Go away, George. I don't want to hurt you. Belt him, I said. Go away, George. I don't want to hurt you. Watch it, big fella. Now, let him get up by himself. Come on, get up. I'm sorry, kid, but it was the only way to prove it to you. You never killed anybody and you can't fight. You don't punch hard enough to bust an egg. Priest was right. You better go home before you get yourself badly hurt and wind up on skid row like the rest of the boys. Isn't that right, George? Mr. Willis is right, Toro. <laughs> being in your 50s in the 50s was like being in your 80s now. And the guy just drops him in, in, in one punch. And it's just, I, I thought that scene was incredible. And that character gets fleshed out a lot more in the novel. And so that's one of like the missed opportunities. The book is, uh, let's see, the book I think is... 300 pages long or 340. So it just gives you an opportunity to explore more of these narratives and more of these characters. And yeah, for boxing fans, MMA fans, harder they fall, it fucking rocks. Yeah, uh, it's great. Um, I totally recommend it. You know, it's not, not tough. It's funny. I like, I've also got the novel of On the Waterfront. It was kind of weird. I was looking at these novelizations, you know, and it's kind of great to have a novelization of an amazing movie by the guy who actually wrote the movie, which is really unusual. That, But that was, uh, 54 was the final novel, and then he was done, Bud Schulberg. But uh, yeah, it's 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 a great movie. Rod Steiger, Humphrey Bogart, really clicks along. Um, it's it, I, I, I'm at a little bit of a loss not having read the book. But even just talking about the movie, just ex- exclusively that, it's got great little details, like Carlos Montalban, who... I totally forgot was in this, but he's the dictator in Bananas, the Woody Allen film, and he's hysterical. He's the guy's like, I've been poisoned so many times, I've developed an immunity. Like he's a really oh, good performer, but he's incredible in this as well. That's yeah, that's the guy. He's he's the um, the trainer, isn't he? His yeah. mate who brings him over from Argentina, and then but you have all these kind of clients like, you are our friend. <laughs> he's not your friend. He's he's selling you down the river here, you know, and. Uh, your man, the, the the El Gigante, who think you know, I don't know my own strength. You know, these hands can kill. They just sort of bring him along. They have the, you know, the, the tour bus with the cutout of him, you know, drives all over. You really get the sense of them doing that, that sort of, you know, um, tour of all these Hicksville places. And- yeah, and how at the end their plan is, now that they've, they've built him up, he's been destroyed, and now they want to do the reverse. They want to take him on the exact same tour again, but let the small town boy or the local fighter kick his ass in every single town. It's just, it's just a ruthless depiction of the way fighters can kind of be used up and disposed of. I recommend the book. I recommend the movie. But let's switch gears into a movie that I think flew under the radar for many, many decades. But now thanks to Criterion, people are finally realizing 
as I mentioned before, it's one of the most prophetic films about the way that personas can be built up to have this enormous cultural influence, but it allows you a look behind the scenes on how you can take just a small town country boy and turn him into a political force and just how how dangerous that phenomenon can be and how we always... Again, we always get a little um, nearsighted where we think that the time that we live in is particularly special, but there's nothing really new under the sun. And the way we see certain social media personalities now weighing in on politics or the way we saw like the emergence of uh, cable news in the late 90s, early 2000s, and the way it built up some of those personalities or radio personalities, I think A Face in the Crowd and Network are the two best movies that I've ever seen when it comes to showing how a persona can suddenly wield almost limitless power in ways that are totally undeserving. And, of course, Schulberg turns his most cynical, acidic gaze on this phenomenon. And you have one of the nicest people in Hollywood history playing this part. you got Andy Griffith playing Lonesome Rhodes, but it's a really evil, savage, dark performance. And I first saw it just at random, maybe about 15 years ago. It blew my mind, and now it's a, it's a huge privilege now to shine a spotlight on a face in the crowd. Me. Cut that thing off a minute. Give me a chance to lubricate my Adam's apple. Ah. Like a little snake medicine to put you in the mood. Ain't mama beauty? Oh, a guitar beats a woman every time. You know I never have seen a woman I could trust like this old guitar. Love my mama guitar. She's always there waiting for me to pick her up and hold her. Never asks me for money or goes cheating around when I ain't looking. And if she gets a little sour, why, I just give her a little twist like so and we're right back in tune together. Hey, Lonesome, sing rye whiskey. Lonesome. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Oh, she can see that plain enough. (laughs) (laughs) You know, ma'am, whatever. A bunch of fellas like us, outcasts, hobos, nobodies, gentlemen loafers, one-time or all-time losers, call us what you want to. Whenever we get together, we tell our funny stories, me and Beanie and the rest of these hand-to-mouth tumbleweed boys like you see in here. If whiskey don't get us, then women must. And it looks like I'm never gonna cease my wandering. Deep down, when we get ready to tuck our heads under our wings and go to sleep, we ain't kidding ourselves. We're so low down, lonely, the fellow we couldn't stand the sight of this morning. Tonight, when the guards get ready to douse the lights and plunge us into darkness, why, that same fella seems like our nearest, dearest buddy. 10,000 miles away from a home. And I don't even know my name. But I ain't crying. No. Because I'm going to be a free man in the morning. <laughs> you hear that, fellas? A free man! The sheriff's going to open up his cage and I'm going to be as free as a bird in the morning. 
Hey, maybe I can try putting a couple of rhymes together. I sing something dependable like Home on the Range. I ain't gonna sing no Home on the Range. No, sir. Not if it means I rot in here another month. I'm gonna sing what I'm gonna be. A free man in the morning. Oh, good night, moon. Moon, you just fade, 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 fade away. Oh, good night, moon. Moon, you just fade away. And hurry up, Mr. Sun. Bring on you day. Oh, yeah, amazing movie. I first saw it about a month ago in hospital on the sort of laptop. It had been on my radar forever, of course, you know. I should really watch the face in the crowd instead of just watching on the waterfront for the you know fiftieth time. But um, this is Eli. Cause, you know, if there are any deficiencies from the hire, do they fall because it's not a proper Bud Schuberg script? This is sort of put up front and center when it the credit says Bud Schuberg's a face in the crowd. Doesn't he gets say, the possessive title over the over the film? It's not Kazan's yeah. a face in the crowd. It's no. Schuberg's a face in the crowd, it's, which I can't think of another example in movie history where a prestigious director kind of gets shoved aside by the writer because how writers are ordinarily just totally dismissed by Hollywood. Absolutely. And there's this whole thing of like, you know, like I, I heard a few directors saying, I hate to see this fucking thing. It's a Michael Mann movie. You know, if you have nothing to do with the screenplay, it's not your movie. Although Michael Mann did write uh, the screenplay for heat. So they, there's well, deserved. Michael Bay then or whoever. Yeah, yeah, you know, I'm, yeah. just, I'm just saying a director who had nothing to do with the screenplay, this person was arguing, cannot say a such and such person yeah. film because, you know, none of the scenes would exist without, no matter how wonderfully you conjured them. And yeah, this is, maybe it's because of... Yeah, the poster says, an Elia Kazan production, Bud Schulberg's A Face in the Crowd. So I'm, sh- I'm sure a lot of agents did a lot of agenting uh, behind the scenes trying to negotiate how this flick would be promoted. Yeah, that's the title card for the movie. Bud yeah. Schulberg's A Face in the Crowd. So, you know, maybe the experience with The Heart of the Fall where he was almost forced off it and gave it to another writer saying, this is 100% mine because it's his story. Yep. And it's reuniting Elia Kazan with Bud Schulberg. And uh, funny, I saw Spike Lee talking about this movie on uh, TCM or one of the, you know, he loves this movie. And he was great mates with Bud Schulberg. And they they planned to write a movie about Joe Louis and Max Schmeling, their heavyweight bout in the in the 30s. And he was saying that's almost one of the reasons why Bud stayed 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 with us so long was to try and get that movie made but uh but he was presenting a face in the crowd just saying what a wonderful movie it is and it and it's it's basically they have a bigger budget than they have for on the water for you know it's it's that sort of second third you know that second movie this the smash hit success of on the one the yeah, runaway I mean, on the waterfront was shot for nine hundred thousand, and then i think uh gross about nine million in america it's a movie you wouldn't think would be a crowd pleaser but it became a smash success well, yeah, I mean, the, the the Harry Cones and all were saying, this movie is good. You know, it's just a bunch of fucking sweaty longshoremen. Nobody wants to watch that. But because it was a huge hit, of course, they go, oh, well, maybe these guys know something. So they threw more money at a face in the crowd and you get to see huge crowd scenes. And also, especially towards the end, you get to see big set design in uh, Lonesome's 
house and everything and it's like the UN and stuff like that but the film was a flop I think it's just it's a little bit too hard hitting and too cynical and I think if you've got certain personalities who perhaps aren't necessarily very well educated but that you have like blind faith in no one wants to have their illusions kind of dispelled or no one wants to have to question their assumptions about certain figures that they might where they might hang upon their every word and it's like yeah this is a uh, a country bumpkin who suddenly is meeting with generals and politicians and weighing in on social security and throwing his weight around on issues that he barely understands and um, it's it's a phenomenon that keeps repeating itself over and over and over again in every era, irrespective yeah. of your, your whatever your leanings in politics might be. Um, I think it's one of those films that's ahead of its time. You know, it's 50 years ahead of its time, 70 yeah. years ahead of its time. I mean, yeah. it's incredible. It's, it's relevant like, in any era. Like certain certain albums, certain pieces of art, certain movies, it just takes a while for everyone to catch up, you know, and... Uh, if for anyone who haven't seen it, it's the story of this this uh, woman is going around, you know, recording hicks and, and hillbillies and stuff yeah, for the lovely you Patricia know, Neal, who I Patricia adore yeah. from the Fountainhead with Gary Cooper and had a big. She came out of like a semi-retirement to do this movie. She'd been gone for a couple of years after she had a big falling out when Gary Cooper refused to divorce his wife at the time to be with her, and she, anyway. That's a different story for another day, but Patricia Neal came back for this, and she's a marvelous Ooh. actress. Yeah, she's incredible. Everyone's incredible in it. Walter Matthau's in it. Yeah. Lee Remick is in it, yeah. making her screen debut, looking ridiculously hot. I mean, they're all like it's a incredible cast, and she's going around recording people in like prisons and juke joints, and she meets this character, Lonesome Rhodes, who's played by yeah, Matlock, Andy Griffith, and he's a uh, rootin', tootin', beer drinking, and he's just got the gift a of the gab. Guitar you know? beats a woman every time. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. <laughs> I'm a free man in the morning, yeah. free man. Uh, I, I, I um, saw on the uh, listings that um, Bud Schubert wrote the lyrics for all the songs oh, nice. as well. And uh, The dialogue yeah, he, in the songs are incredible. It's like, I put my whole self into everything I do. I mean, Andy Griffith huh? was born to play this part. Absolutely. And he wrote the lyrics for the Vitalite ads and all this sort of stuff. We, I mean... We get it. But anyway, the story is that they discovered this country bumpkin and he's got that good old down home touch and everyone loves to hear him. Oh, we want to hear more of that Lonesome Roads. So suddenly advertises one of him and he gets more and more influence until he becomes this big, dark, malevolent force, you know, using his power over the, the drones out there, the Eddie six packs sitting on their couch, the slobs to... Um, to, to, to be shifted into politics and put this shifty politician into power. And it's sort of a, a, a cautionary tale about the power of TV, so what will become social media, influencing, all this sort of thing. And also the, the dawning horror on Patricia Neal's character where she realizes that she has truly created a monster. She's created a megalomaniac. She's created just this, like a, a power-mad despot in a lot of ways. Yeah, as Walter Matthau refers to him, demagogue in denim. Oh, it's so great. Yeah, Walter Matthau, who looks like he was, he's just one of those guys who was born 80 years old, and he's yeah. really young in this, and he still looks the exact same he did, like in Grumpy Old Men, but it's a, an incredible performance. And you get the sense that his character is uh, much like Humphrey Bogart's character, where there's these writers, these journalists, who have certain amount of integrity, it feels like he's the Bud Schulberg stand-in in a lot of ways. 
Yeah, yeah, he's like the Woody Allen. He's the he's the kind of but yeah, he's the he's the he's the voice of he's the guy that Patricia Neal, like he's the conscience that if she didn't keep meeting him, she wouldn't feel so conflicted. Yeah, but the fact that he's there, and and he, I mean, he's so drippy and pure, and it's like you know, oh, I would you know, I gave up. Oh, I wouldn't work in that anymore. You know, so I've written my novel. Demagogue in Denim, which are amazing title. Yeah, and same like how Bogey's writing, the harder they fall, at the end of the harder they fall. I mean, it's just yeah, he's Butchelberg's always inserting these writer characters into uh, into his yarns, and they and they are showing the sort of purity, you know, that you have to put this dross aside and that you have to be pure to your art and all this sort of thing. But um, yeah, it's it's absolutely amazing, and then. So Lonesome Rose becomes a, he starts advertising this mattress brand, but he's, he's totally like uncontrollable. He'll slag off the mattress company and, you know, so they, they fire him. They say, this isn't, you know, this isn't on. Then you have all these angry protesters burning mattresses outside yeah. their shop. You know, he becomes such a cult figure that he realizes more and more and he's got more and more power. There's a line, I mean, there's so many amazing lines in it, but what could be more, more 2020? He says, I'm not just an ent- entertainer. I'm an influence, a wielder of opinion, a force, a force. Like he's a social influencer, you know, 60 years before Instagram was. Absolutely. But this is, he's one of those guys that would have 80 million subscribe, 80 million followers on Twitter and probably a hundred million on Instagram would be a very dangerous person in 2020, but obviously TV in the fifties is the same thing as fucking Twitter and Facebook now. And yeah. it's almost like Beatlemania mixed in with politics and, I just love how ruthless and cynical it is from start to finish and like the way he's able to hurl himself into certain ad campaigns and how these kind of buttoned up ad ad execs would get so upset. Like we spend all this time and energy looking into finding words like zesty and so on and so forth. But it's like I love how they're selling this pill. It's essentially like cocaine and Viagra all in one, at least the way Lonesome Roads tries to yeah. uh, sell it. If it did, if it did that, it'd be worth it. But yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's essentially a placebo. Yeah. I, uh, it's a, but I, apparently according to, to something I read on IMDb, they said the Vitajex tablets, the Lonesome Roads, uh, Hawks have six grains of dextrose, five grains of an inert material, 2.5 grains of caffeine and 3.5 grains of aspirin. That's roughly the equivalent of a 16 ounce cafe latte and two baby aspirin tablets. But the way Lonesome some roads sells it once again viagra and cocaine mixed all into one and yeah he is one hell of a salesman yeah i mean is basically he, he he comes into the uh ad guys rips up their, re- their research or the bullshit and says look what we're going to say is you know this puts a bit of lead in your pencil essentially and he basically becomes like a sexual molester he like during this pitch he, he's like oh i'm ready it's like oh my god like are you gonna like have sex with everybody in this room like here and now right. <laughs> it's incredible he's, he's- He's ready to go off. And I mean, even the Vitage, even the fact that 50 years before Viagra, it, it begins with VI and it essentially they're trying to sell it as the same. Like everything in this film, when looked through the lens of 2020, just seems ridiculously prophetic. You know, so, so many movies just disintegrate into total irrelevance so quickly. And I think when I first saw Face in the Crowd, I was blown away by how prescient it felt at the time, but it, it's grown. In the much interim. more absolutely yeah. like and, and and again for me people who go wow he's just like trump i'm like okay yeah that's pretty pretty lazy sort of you know he's just like any sort of like populist yeah, comparisons to trump or commentary about trump i think is the intellectual crutch 
of the last four years. Like comedians yeah. use it as a crutch if they're not actually funny. Like, well, I'll just dog on Trump, and then I'll, people will get I'll get a laugh. Like I'm so tired of people using it as a shortcut when for as a substitute for talent. And if people can only read a face in the crowd as a criticism on Trump, well, then I feel like it's a very narrow interpretation of this phenomenon. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that is really intellectually lazy. But one part that is totally like Trump is when he's like talking to all the cabinet members and he says he's talking about his audience and, you know, he's like going, I could murder them just like this. Reminded me of Trump saying, uh, I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody. I wouldn't lose any voters. It's almost like line for line. Like every scene has something that reflects 2020 when you look back at it. You know, every scene, like even when he's talking about his social influence, you would have watched that 10 years ago and go, oh, yeah, yeah. But now it's more relevant than ever. Absolutely. That's what people I miss. Mean, that is the term people use. Like, oh, they're an influencer about diet or they're an influencer about fitness or an influencer about politics. But that is that is a term or a micro influencer or a mini influencer or a major. I mean, you get the sense that it almost like even if people don't know it, that we live in the shadow of Bud Schulberg. But it's a weird thing where because Andy Griffith is so charismatic and so naturally likable, especially if you've watched the Andy Griffith show where it's like he's every person's you know favorite uncle or favorite father or favorite grandfather, you almost can overlook all the clues that he leads along the way that this guy's a horrible human being. The very first time we see him when somebody's waking him up in jail – the way he comes to, he shows for a brief shining moment this snarl, like he's like, oh, this is a violent, savage mm. person. But then, of course, he stands up, he drinks a little booze, he starts doing his shtick, and everybody falls in love with him. But every step of the way, we see just we see the darkness lurking underneath. If you allow yourself to see it, if you can look past the kind of folksy charm of his persona. Yeah, it's great. And he, well, he's, just, he's got the folksy charm. But yeah, I mean, anyone who's woken up at eight in the morning with a hangover is going to be irascible. He's just he's like a really human character. He's not. I mean, he is a man. I mean, until the end, he kind of goes a little bit over the top at the end. But but like, you know, all the way up to there, like there's an amazing scene where where he's leaving his old his, his hometown. And again, because they've been given lots more money, there's thousands of extras. And the amazing shot, the camera is like a uh, fixed to the side of the train and he's hanging out with the train. He's waving. Thank you, everyone. Goodbye. And he's, you know, and as soon as he's out of sight, he's just, the smile just goes from his face. Yeah. And he says something really insulting about them. And Patricia, and Patricia Neal kind of reacts. And he's like, Oh, I'm just kidding. I can't remember the exactly. exact line, but even with her periodically, she's like, wait a second. What, what did I just see? And then he very quickly raises the facade again. Oh yeah. I was just joshing, but yeah, he gives us glimpses. I mean, there's that old thing, you know, when people are telling you who they are, listen to them, you know, and yeah. uh, he, he gives us the information, but he wraps it up in this folksy charm so much that uh, people just go along with it, you know. The general's been talking to Fuller. He's selling him on the idea of creating a new cabinet post for me in time of imminent crisis and danger. That's the way the general puts it. Who could rally the people better than I could? Hold him in line, right behind the government. If we'd put Fuller across the way, I know we're gonna, he's gonna owe me that. Secretary for National Morale. How's that sound to you, Marshal? Secretary for National Morale. <laughs> General's asking Fuller to shake hands on it with me after the big banquet I'm throwing tomorrow night, launching fighters for Fuller. Fighters for Fuller? Yeah, fighters for Fuller. How you like that name, huh? 
made it up. Everybody's, everybody's nuts about it. I, I got 20 of the biggest men in this country coming to my banquet tomorrow night to get fighters for Fuller Road. Got a retired admiral from the Joint Chiefs, two governors, some of them big investment house boys, and a cabinet minister. Which one? <sighs> oh, I don't know. I told the general to pick one out for me. And they coming to your party? Oh, honey, if I ask them, they gotta come. Maybe they'd be afraid not to come. I could murder them. Like this. <laughs> afraid it's true. What's true? Right here tonight. You might have that much power. Didn't you ratings this morning? 53.7. Just picked up another million. This whole country's just like my flock of sheep. Rednecks, crackers, hillbillies, house frows, shut-ins, pea pickers. Everybody that's got to jump when somebody else blows the whistle. <laughs> they don't know it yet, but they're all gonna be fighters for Fuller. They're mine. I own them. They think like I do. <laughs> Only they're even more stupid than I am, so I gotta think for them. Marsha, you just wait and see. I'm going to be the power behind the president, and you'll be the power behind me. And he's also just, he's hes a classic seductor, so seducer. He's seducing Patricia, Patricia Neal from the word go, and he has these like this one incredible line, which is like, you cold fish, respectable girls, inside you crave the same thing as the rest of them. And so he's confusing her and mixing her up romantically and emotionally so it makes it she loses her ability to see what's staring her square in the face but ultimately obviously she becomes the engineer <laughs> of his destruction i mean this is it happens all the time where like somebody leaves a mic on and a politician or a newscaster or a broadcaster says something when they think nobody's listening and she just utterly completely takes him down for all time and then walter matthau has that incredible scene it's like look you're going to come back to TV, but it's just going to be a little bit different. It won't be quite as special, and it'll be a little smaller. And then, like, you know, years on the road, be like, oh, yeah, who is that guy? Like, Lonesome Roads. Like, he used to be big. And the way he is able to predict his diminishing relevance and his eventual obscurity is, like, the ultimate destruction for somebody who needs the the approbation of the crowd. Yeah, I mean, it's like give him enough rope and he'll hang himself. And, and she, she, the, the thing with the hot mic is interesting because, you know, they're, they're like, I think Obama was caught out saying, can you guys a jackass, you know, people, people do these things. Uh, and then he laughed it off, you know, and then uh, my, my favorite was George know. Bush at one point, you hear him saying, uh, uh, somebody asked like who like a particular journalist is. And he goes, Oh, he's a major asshole from the New York times. And I was like, <laughs> Yeah. Like, but it's just because it's so honest and for, for a brief shining moment you just get to see what they're what they're saying and what they're thinking yeah like there's uh, there was a guy there was a football commentator here and he had a hot mic moment where he uh or well he was an english uh an english um uh, ex-football manager and he you know made racist uh rant about a player from chelsea marcel <laughs> desai uh off mic when he was doing like a nixer in the middle east and people, you know, got hurt wind of it. And it was pretty much the end of his career, you know, and th these things happen. Like for me, it was funny, like the, like the biggest one of the last, like talking about Trump. I mean, the big, the one that killed from 2016 uh, was Hillary Clinton when she got into her basket of deplorable speech. And that wasn't even a hot mic. The fucking mic was on. 
but she was so fucking stupid that like she Mitt didn't Romney had was... his forty-seven uh, percent speech in two thousand twelve, where you had like a bartender in disguise filming on their phone, and that helped uh, take him down. So, but sometimes people hang themselves just saying what they think people are, are going exactly. to like. Just, it's, it's just like a lonesome rope. Give him enough rope, he'll hang himself. So basically, she thought she was saying something really cool, but actually, she was just you know, confirming to a lot of people that she was an elitist snob. And Providing that she thought, ammunition oh, for her critics. Yeah. And she thought that people like Lonesome Rhodes were, and his fans were a basket of deplorables. And it was like, wasn't, you know, off mic, it was deliberate. And she was too dumb to realize by the time she'd said it, her chances of being elected were just being flushed down the toilet. You know? Yeah, so, I mean, if you, what's that old expression about how if you just stand by a river long enough, so, sooner or later you'll see your enemies float by. And if you despise these figures who you know deep down are pure pure scum or have certain ethical shortcomings, just once again, just get out of their way and let them commit. Because I imagine in the context of this character, Lonesome Roads, even if he hadn't had this hot mic moment which destroys him, he would have imploded sooner or later because we see that as he gets bigger, he can't keep it in his pants. He's chasing women all around. He's chasing like underage girls. And like, I mean, mm-hmm. there's a really revealing moment where he's, even he starts to realize how he's lost control over his empire when his business partner, who's kind of helped come up through the ranks with him, he comes in and sees that he's got he's, uh, his hand uh, basically inside the dress of his of Lonesome Road's young wife, played by Lee Remick, mm-hmm. and like they zip her back up. And then he tries to fire the guy. And he's like, he's like I, I own 51% of Lonesome Roads Productions. Like, you can't get rid of me. Like, you're with me, like, forever. And Lonesome Roads has this moment of horror realizes he no longer is the master of his own destiny. And yeah, just every aspect of this film just floors me. I, I just can't get over how brilliant the writing is from start to finish. Yeah, it's amazing. Although you still think, like, this guy could just jump in the, you know, in a, in a, he could just jump in a, in a train and, you know, sleep and wake up somewhere and just start again. He's just that, he's just that sort of character, even though he's completely destroyed in the end. But yeah, the, the writing all the way through it, when they meet the senator that he's supposed to be promoting and he said he's flattered in last night's beer, you know, they just, and uh, when he gets, a, he gets his own TV show then called the Cracker Barrel Show, where it's just country folk listening to Lonesome yeah, Rose. like, how come folks keep thinking they need more and more and more and more Social Security? Absolutely. He's, uh, he's, he's uh, Lonesome Rose sounding off on everything from the price of popcorn to the hydrogen bomb. And I thought that was like, uh, you know, Peter Griffin on The Family Guy. He has this show, What Really Grinds My Gears. Like, yeah, that's absolutely. That's essentially what this is. Lonesome Rhodes just gets up there and gives out. There's so many 21st century equivalents. that the, the list, you, I mean, throw a rock and you'll find a, an apt comparison. But apparently at the time, long before he was president, Kazan and Schulberg went to D.C. where they interviewed LBJ. And they started studying the way he walks, the way he talks, the way he presents himself behind the scenes, as well as in front of the cameras. And obviously he became president when JFK was assassinated and then he was elected in a landslide in 64. But he had a very Texan down-home way of presenting himself and he had a, a, a style and a shtick. But if you, one of my all-time favorite candid hot, it's not even a hot mic, because it took decades for this to uh, reach the public. When uh, there are certain Nixon tapes that were released decades after they were recorded, and part of this collection, there's a, a thing people can find on YouTube where LBJ is talking to a tailor when he's ordering some pants, 
Mm. And he's explaining how his weight varies like 15 pounds every month and how he sometimes he feels like he's sitting on a wire fence, but he's exp- using all these references about like about like his bunghole. And he's, he's just speaking very frankly and candidly mm. about his man parts below the waist to his tailor. And it's like, if you want to hear a Texan politician you know, warts and all, expressing himself very colorfully. Just look up LBJ, like, talks to a tailor on YouTube, and you will laugh okay. for a fucking month. Yeah, well, the problem they have is, you know, the, the senator that they're trying to push is flattered and last night's beard doesn't have any of that, you know, so they try and build him up as a, a duck-shooting fool. You know, he goes out duck hunting with him, and the guy's, like, freeze and can't hit anything. And Well, you see you how know, you engineer, you can engineer and create these personas and Lonesome Roads is a master at helping him refine and change his craft. And it's just, it's so insightful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I thought what was really interesting for me was, um, I really didn't think the Senator was that bad. (laughs) I really didn't think he was the, like, so, I mean, essentially if you, you, the one real crime of the Senator is they call him, he's the last of the isolationists. And that's the one line that doesn't play in 2020, because when when Bud Schilberg's talking about an isolationist, he's he's using his World War Two experience. You know, in World War Two, there was a big movement of Americans are saying, look, these are Europeans going crazy, killing each other. You know, so people like Charles Lindbergh and all these American heroes started this movement and it was all America first stuff. And it was isolationism, as in let them kill each other. Why are we going to get drawn into the war? Now, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, that whole argument became moot because the Japanese had declared war on America anyway, and the Germans did the next day. So, you know, that argument was was put to bed one way or another. Now we have Joe Biden in power. You know, Joe Biden is someone who voted for the Iraq war. You know, Joe Biden is someone who 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 probably more than any living politician made the Iraq war happen, you know, because he wasn't just someone who voted for it, one of the 77 senators who voted for it. He was the head of the uh, US in, in the House of Representatives. He was the head of the Foreign Affairs Committee when they were having the debate. So he chose who the guests were. And he basically lobbied for the Iraq war, the, the biggest policy, Western policy blunder of the last 50 years. So isolationism now, like you could look back on Donald Trump's reign as being isolationist because he was pulling back, pulling back from overseas wars. Yeah. America didn't invade any countries. You know, he's the first president in 39 years who hasn't started a war. So isolationism now is the, is the, sorry, non-isolation is the American of regime change wars and things like that. So there's, there's a subtle difference between his isolationism. I think, you know, but Schulberg's looking back, but if we look forward and see America as the world's policeman, there's a danger in that as well as a danger in being isolationist, you know? So that's, you know, it can't hit every note perfectly, but, you know, you understand where it's getting about foreign policy. I mean, the, the real problem is they're selling something that this guy isn't. But I mean, that's kind of PR bump that all politicians do. I mean, and so apart from being an isolationist, his other big crime is he wants to reduce social welfare by a couple of percent, which is, you know, that's what most right wing politicians want to do. This is not like. Yeah, this is all your classic kind of all the anti nanny state rhetoric they've been hearing since basically the days of fdr yeah it's classic it's but it's you can see this is where 
Bud Schulberg's liberalism is is on display. You know, it's like it's not McCarthyism. It's it's his version of liberalism. You know, on, on, on in his showing. And I was reminded, I keep reminded of the Dead Zone by Stephen King. You know that amazing movie? Have you seen? Oh yeah, it? yeah. I mean, I've seen like a billion. Cronenberg at at his Absolutely. best. Stephen King at his best, but Martin Sheen, particularly good. Yeah, Martin Sheen is this is this demagogue in a suit who, you know, he's very charismatic. And then and, and, and Christopher Walken, whenever he touches him, he gets this vision of what the guy is going to do. Thermonuclear war. Yeah. Thermonuclear hallelujah. War. The, the missiles yeah, are flying. The missiles are flying. Hallelujah. OK, there's a guy who needs to be taken out. This guy, I think, you know, I think. I think unemployment should go like from 15 to 12.5 percent. I know it's possibly yeah, he's bad. Just, he's just a run of the mill kind of slightly right of center guy for his time. <laughs> it's not quite. I'm going to start World War Three and obliterate the planet. You know, yeah, the is threat kind of is Lonesome Roads, not the senator that he's supporting. Exactly, exactly. And the idea is, once you let Lonesome Roads get this guy in, he might let someone who's even more dangerous in, and all that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, it was just, it's just interesting contrast in the the two sort of you know uh, demagogue characters. But yeah, the idea is once once he gets his way this time, God knows what he's going to do le- next, and that's why he needs to be taken down. And he's taken down. He's he's hoisted by his own petard. It's it's a it's, knockout punch by uh, Patricia Neal. Well, Francois Truffaut is a massive admirer of this film. He wrote, "What is important is not its structure, but its unassailable spirit, its power, and what I dare call its necessity." The usual fault with honest films is their softness, timidity, and anesthetic neutrality. This film is passionate, exalted, fierce, as inexorable as a mythology of Roland Barthes if I'm saying that correctly, and like right. it, a pleasure for the mind. Well, I'm sure some wrong real listeners are reacting in horror and amazement that I'm actually discussing anything about politics because I usually avoid politics like the plague on the show. However, when you come across a movie that's as well-written as this and that's as insightful as this, it's uh, this is when I feel comfortable to venture into... I mean. I despise people who use politics as a crutch to try to generate controversy when they lack anything interesting to talk about, and that's not really my style. But I admire political films when they're particularly observant about just human nature. And so I, I have no uh, no doubts. I have no remorse over kind of breaking my usual policy when it comes to a face in the crowd, because I think it's one of those movies, I would never say everybody's required to watch it, but if you want to understand how we get some of the monsters that we see on a daily basis on Twitter just hurling their opinions around like feces, a face in the crowd kind of sums up the whole phenomenon. Very well put, yeah. And I think because if you look at all that period before Bud Schulberg made On the Waterfront, everything he worked in was TV. So he would have seen, he'd been soaking up, like he soaked up all that sort of Irish Americanism, you know, like like all the great writers, you would have soaked up all, you know, and in the early fifties, people were worried about the power of TV. So it really comes across that the, the the 1950s version of social media, and he he wants to almost warn people. And I think, I mean, the politics are great and interesting, but to me, this film is like King Lear or something. It's just like someone who gets so huge that he ends up destroying himself in this ridiculously over-the-top way. You know, it's Shakespearean as well as, you know, Shakespeare films are all about politics, but they're all about the human soul and the ability to corrupt ourselves and you know that a little bit of power a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing so i think whatever your politics you're going to love this movie absolutely because you're going to see in lonesome roads 
the people you despise, irrespective of which way you lean. Because both sides have their equivalents of lonesome roads, and they and they always will. Yeah, I mean, and he's kind of a weather vane. And you know, you can look at you can look at the Patricia Neal character as like she's a bit of a snob, up for a, looking for a bit of rough, and she picks up these working class oiks, uses them, and throws them aside. And then you know, but this time she meets one who decides, no, I'm going to use the media to further my ends rather than your career. You can look at it that way as well, you know, as a as a commentary on class as well as a commentary on, on, on anything else. But we haven't mentioned the real star of the movie, who is his mate Beanie. For me, he's the best thing in the film. Like he's the he's the comic relief, like, you know, is the And he guy also keeps Lonesome Roads quote unquote honest because if his buddy's laughing, then he knows he's on the right track. Yeah, and he's he, he's he's also like like yeah, exactly. He he gets him in Whenever he's getting a little bit too big for his britches, old uh, old Beanie will be there, you know, to uh, to um, to to get him crashing back down to earth again, you know. But he's he has that bit where you know he's like, oh, we, we, Lonesome isn't even in the scene, you know. And he goes, oh, there's a woman to see you to his wife, and she's like, goes, a woman. He goes, well, I guess so. She's wearing a dress, you know. He just throws all these, and he's totally deadpan, and you know, um, what's his name? Lonesome will say, I mean, look at this guy. He's a scumbag. He's a scoundrel. You know, you have to throw all these insults at him. And Beanie is just sitting there drinking a beer going, yep, it's all true. You know, he's, he's, he's the everyman that, that lonesome uses. You know, like he, he's, he's the guy that he gets the senator to, uh, you know, who, get, who gets, he gets to tell the senator that you're just completely unappealing. Yeah. There's nothing about your personality. You know, he uses him as a sounding board. But he just has some of the very funny deadpan lines. And I think that's always a sign of a great screenplay when you give some really hilarious zingers to people who seem to be very minor secondary characters. Yeah, well, most movie stars, if they're reading a script and they see a great line, like, well, I want to say that line. And if they have enough power, they might get to take the line. And But a great screenplay always has a very deep bench. And great writers like Preston Sturgis or John Huston or whomever will always have incredible lines given to even like the the smallest characters. And it's funny how like Bud Schulberg's name above the title is absolutely earned because apparently this is not one of the things where he turned it in the screenplay and then went off and played golf. He was there like every day on the set. He really helped run the day-to-day on the film, and it makes you get a sense. I mean, he, he claims, yeah, I went on a trip in 1955 to scout a location in Arkansas, and I've been on the set every day since shooting started in August of 1956. So... He and Kazan did seem to find some sort of harmonious rapport where Kazan could handle what the actors do in front of the camera. But when it came to the content of the story, it was the Bud Schulberg show. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's completely invested in it. It's his story. He wants to be there. You know, I'm sure he's observing and... You know, it's uh, it's it's Bud Schulberg's a face in the crowd, and he he's he's there every minute. His imprint is all, all over it. You know, and I yeah. think the fact that it wasn't a huge runaway success, in fact, they probably lost money. You know, because has at the end where he's going to this sort of UN dinner, you see these huge elaborate sets. They're like Doctor Strange love or something. Yeah. You know, it looks expensive, and the huge crowd scenes and everything. You know, it's that thing where. They got the money on the back of on the waterfront success, and then this isn't a success, and it sort of derails things for him for a while, you know. But he's a novelist, so he can always go back to doing that, you know. Yeah, I mean, a writer. That's the beautiful thing about being a writer is that as long as you got pen and paper, you can always practice your craft. A filmmaker needs an army. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're a novelist, like you know, I, I guess someone like Schulberg 
there were there were there were a few times in his career where he thought his career was over in Hollywood. So he just went off to a little cabin in Martha's Vineyard with his typewriter and start working on a novel, you know, and he got because the first one was successful. He'd get advances. I mean, he was published by Random House, you know, so he was getting like a like a, a advances. So he had that to fall back on if Hollywood. So I guess that makes probably makes you a bit daring in standing up to the Harry Cones and people of this world. If you can always just say, well, fuck, fuck you. you money goes a long way in helping you speak your mind when you, when you feel so inclined. Well, the last flick on our list is an unusual one. I bought the DVD sight unseen. With his bloodied ragtail gang, he rules and struts and plunders where other men can't even live. Except you, Walt Murdoch. You're a strange man yourself, and you thrive on a challenge. Hear me, good boy. You try going in there on your own, and you're going to wind up alligator bait. You can get me to my hammer live. I'll take what they got waiting there for me, and I'll kill you the first chance I get. Stay with me. Yes. Tonight. Yes. Tomorrow. Go on, across the Everglades and I know that he spent a lot of time down in Florida and once again he gets the possessive title and it's directed by Nicholas Ray of all people one of the other giant directors of the 50s but Nicholas Ray was starting to get toward the end of his career where the booze was really starting to get to him and I feel like these writers and these filmmakers in the 30s and 40s and 50s they just seem to drink hell of a lot more than people drink these days but Bud Schulberg obviously he understood the world of uh, hard drinking very very well as we saw in the disenchanted but you recommended this, uh, that we at least take a crack at this one because it is a feature film and it does have its defenders and there are a lot of people who regard it as kind of a neglected Nicholas Ray classic although it sounds like Bud Schulberg basically had to kind of shadow direct it toward the end but for people out there who I know, I know most people have not heard of this movie because I've not heard of it either what the hell is Wind Across the Everglades? Yeah this is um, it's an interesting movie I mean it, I just thought we could talk about it for a bit like it's it's a curio it's um, I mean you, you look at it and you go okay wow written by Bud Schulberg directed by Nicholas Ray Rebel Without a Cause all those amazing movies and uh, the story is it's all set in Miami and this is again when Miami was a one street town and it starts with a bunch of shacks. And I guess that's sort of reminiscent of 
Hollywood that Schubert grew up grew up in when it was you know like a just a, a one a couple of dirt streets and and, and hotels. And Christopher Plummer is in it. Apparently, they wanted uh, Paul Newman, a few people as usual, to try and play it. But they, it's a it's a very young Christopher Plummer, and he's arrived. He arrives in Miami as a conservationist, and basically, there's a there's a gang of uh, poachers out in the swamp Everglades, rats. swamp rats, led by uh, Cottonmouth Burl Ives, who is. Uh, hamming it up there with his big red beard oh uh, yeah but he's he's fantastic he's amazing in it and uh he's got a he's got a bunch of ne'er-do-wells including peter falk in yeah. his film debut and uh, one of yeah. the guys from uh on the waterfront the guy who gets all the whiskey dropped on him right ko dugan yeah and uh so they're all out there and basically they they shoot the shit out of all these birds because the 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 fashion and the trend for elegant society ladies is to wear these plumes in their hats and it, it is to such a degree that it's leading to endangerment of species so again just like a face in the crowd this is like decades before its time it's a it's an environmental movie it's a plea for conservationism and and once again we have you know nice bud schulberg's beautiful impeccable liberalism on display saying you know we, we shouldn't be killing all these animals and you know Christopher Plummer's the guy who's going to go up against the poachers and the setup is great and the background is great and you've got some of Nicholas Ray's like really technicolor and you've got all this b-roll footage of alligators slipping into the swamp I love all the stuff I mean it's just everything's eating everything it's like it's, the circle yeah. of life if uh, if you're not an apex predator something's going to swallow you at some at some point like there's yeah, yeah but, snakes and birds and, and fucking bears and all kinds of wildlife yeah there's crazy stuff like there you know everything is is dangerous and uh, it's it's before, like there are no roads there are no maps. Most of the stuff isn't on a map. It's there's poison trees wild. that can yeah. kill you if you touch them. I mean, it's the Everglades now. I mean, it's nothing but snakes and alligators hunting and killing each other all the time. Because some somebody in their infinite wisdom decided to release a bunch of pythons, even though they're not an indigenous species. Now they're fucking everywhere. It's still the wild, wild west in a lot of ways when you get out into the Florida Everglades. Yeah, exactly. The 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 Indian guy that is sent to kill him, but then sort of comes over to his side, you know, yeah, you one get a bit Billy, of, the Seminole, one arm Billy. Yeah. The Seminole, you know, this kind of like noble savage, like, and stuff, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit like that really with his character. But, uh, uh, when the gang find out that he hasn't uh, knocked off Christopher Plummer, he gets tied to this bizarre tree that like, if you touch it, turns you to like eyes to puss and everything. And yeah, it's just really, everything's putrid and there's death around every corner and Cottonmouth is called Cottonmouth because he's the only one who tames this Cottonmouth state snake, this vicious, poisonous snake that he keeps in his pocket. And that's how he bumps people off by slipping it into their bedchamber. And it's got some great bits. And there's, there's great scenes in the bar. Uh, you know, the bar where the, the blues guy is playing the piano. Bud Schulberg wrote all the songs that he's singing nice. as well. As well as he wrote, you know, so he wrote all those uh, tune, Lucky, Lonely Boy Blues. He wrote the song. Some really great uh songs in, in, that are played in this sort of bordello type place it just loads of great parts to it but it doesn't 100 percent hang together as a movie and i think that is because yeah nicholas ray was kind of drinking and a little bit out of control and and 
but Schulberg essentially should have directed this picture himself and he, he probably thought he really passionate about the story and about environmentalism and he got Nicholas Ray this great classic director to direct it and he hated what and, and Nicholas Ray just started uh, rewriting the script which obviously Schulberg at this stage in his career thought was ter- you know beyond the pale and eventually it's I, I read he, he sacked Nicholas Ray slung him off the project and then started directing it himself and we don't really know where where it stops and starts. Something tells me that Ray's stuff in there, like those the really colorful scenes with everybody just like drinking in the rain and like fighting and arguing and laughing and telling stories, that seems like stuff that Nicholas Ray would have hurled himself into. But I can't say for certain. I, I have no idea where Schulberg ends and Ray begins. No, no, I've not. And I, and I think when they were down there in the 40 degrees and the, the swab, I don't think they, they knew either. I think it was just kind of one of those sort of like Apocalypse Now type shoots of yeah, it's just... It's Earth. a bad idea to shoot any movie where it's sweaty and hot and humid and rains all the time and storms all the time and there's animals all around that are going to kill you or fucking poison you or whatever. Just nobody should ever go... Unless you're Werner Herzog, don't go into those environments to try to make a movie because you're just at the mercy of so many things that you cannot control. Yeah, and the guys who live in the swamp just they are literally swamp people. Like they, they literally roll around in mud and shit like the Monty Python <laughs> character <laughs> in the holy grail. Like they're just covered in filth. And There's some two, lovely filth down here. <laughs> so when so when two guys, you know, two prison breakers get in, they have to fight for a sort of, you know, a room and they, they they beat the guys up but they're just rolling around this moment and then miraculously see of course the next day everyone's clean and you know even Although though not Christopher the... Plummer he wakes up with one of the most wicked hangovers that are humanly possible covered okay. in filth and finally Cottonmouth who's so he needs to be taken to Miami uh, and so he agrees to go along, but he he was not going to necessarily be helpful. But if at any point Christopher Plummer lets his guard down, Cottonmouth says he's going to kill him. And so you get this really. It reminds me a little bit of Tim Holt and Humphrey Bogart and uh, Treasure of the Sierra Madre when they're traveling along at the end and Bogey's waiting for Tim Holt to fall asleep so that he can betray him and steal all the gold. And so we have the situation where Plummer, in spite of being hungover with no sleep, is trying to just by sheer force of will get Cottonmouth back through the Everglades to Miami. And of course he gets hopelessly lost They're up to their tits and swamp water and snakes. And it's just awful. <laughs> and, but eventually Cottonmouth gets a nice Cottonmouth bite right there on the wrist and decides just to sit down and become a part of the swamp. And he actually even pr- predicted that early on. We was talking about the, um, the swamp cabbage that's so good for the gut. He says that all the seeds in his belly, eventually when he dies, are just going to turn into a tree right over his body. Yeah. He's, he, he it's funny. He, um, the thing about that is he does go gentle into that good night. You know, it's like the cover of the DVD shows the two of them, you know, fighting and all that. And the whole thing does build up to this sort of confrontation. And it's not quite um, Johnny Friendly meets Terry Malloy. You know, there's something and maybe there's something pacifist about it or, or there's something that he wanted to show that the people who are exploiting the planet can realize the error of their ways and become one with nature and everything. But for whatever reason, I just found it a bit dramatically lacking. And Yeah, it, it lacks the punch. That whole one, like a, a principled man versus a corrupt system, it's a great premise that's been done a million times over, but it doesn't really have like the big payoff at the end that you're craving. And as you mentioned before with On the Waterfront, it's got like 12 scenes that are these enormous emotional peaks. And a lot mm. of Wind Across the Everglades just feels kind of strangely inert. It's got a lot of color and a lot of flavor and tons of potential. 
but I would not recommend that people start with this movie if they're curious about Bud Schulberg. It's the last movie that I saw on this list. It's the last thing I did in preparation. But yeah, I read The Disenchanted. I revisited the movies. This is not this is not the first stop on the uh, on that train ride if you're trying to understand his career. No, not at all. I just thought. I mean, I I just saw it and I thought there's a real curiosity, and it reminded me of like um, something like. Um, What's going on by Marvin Gaye? You know, that comes out sort of thirty years before, and you know, Mercy, Mercy Me, the ecology, and it comes out thirty years before everyone's sort of talking about the environment, and it's 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 years like a face in the crowd. It's it's decades before it's time. Greta Thunberg's like favorite movie that Schulberg made, if she got her hands on it. How dare you? Yes, she would. She would like it, but you know, and and, and it is visionary in that way. But because of the sort of fiasco of who's directing it, you know, if it doesn't have the punch. And I suppose it's disappointing because on the waterfront and the harder they fall and um, and the face in the crowd, they all, you know, hit the notes and they have such peaks and they all have such epic climaxes that this one sort of, you know, just sort of drains out into the swamp a little bit. Yeah, but it's so, yeah, it's 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 something if you haven't seen any of these movies watch the other three first yeah but there's some defenders there are some critics in france who said this is one of nicholas oh, ray's best despite all its course. shortcomings but of course only the the french love to defend uh the lesser films and filmmakers uh filmography but if i'm going to talk about nicholas ray i'm going to say check out in a lonely place i'm going to say check out they live by night i'm going to say yeah on dangerous ground johnny guitar of Rebel Without a Cause. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of films that Nicholas Ray made that are amazing, but I would not, I would not rank this one as one of his finest achievements. But I will watch any movie directed by Nicholas Ray because I have enormous respect for him as a filmmaker. Same here. Yeah, I mean, um, In a Lonely Place, one of my favorite movies. It's just, it's just, it's an epic. And um, if you want to read a good book, you should, you, the, the original novel by Dorothy B. Hughes is absolutely killer chilling novel written from the point of the serial killer now, dorothy again uh, uh, one of those male writers with a girl name or is it an actual girl this oh, time around oh no dorothy's dorothy this gotcha. is like this isn't, this isn't surrender dorothy this is dorothy b hughes who was uh who wrote a bunch of uh incredible novels she wrote another one called an invisible man was it about uh, a sort of um, a black guy is accused of murder she wrote. Uh, she and she also wrote an amazing. Uh, she might even be someone interesting discussing. Uh, she wrote uh, "Ride the Pink Horse," which is an amazing uh, sort of film noir, all set down in Mexico. So she had a couple of cracking movies, but um, the original novel has been re-released by Penguin. It's got a nice picture of Bogey on the cover, and and uh, is it Gloria Graham and. Uh, 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 whoever the actress is, and that anyway, it's ma- amazing. Uh, Amazing novel, but um, yeah, I wouldn't wouldn't start with this. I'd finish with it when you'd got through all the yeah, others. After you've watched On the Waterfront a thousand times, then you can check out Wind Across the Everglades. But we've been going for a little over three hours. I feel like it's zipped by, but just as a way of kind of starting to draw things to a close, any final thoughts on Schulberg's career, you know, military career, political career, writing career, filmmaking career, or just any, any uh, closing closing remarks to kind of just or bring everything full circle in this conversation. Yeah, I mean, I think we tracked it all. I, I mean, I think he's like his, his some of the events, you know, 
waiting in that room in Kitzbühel for Lenny Riefenstahl to swan down the stairs. You know, he's had some fairly amazing moments in his life. And uh, I, yeah, I would just think, you know, go back to the work. If you have, if you've seen On the Waterfront, great. If you haven't, what an amazing treat. One of the best movies ever to come out of Hollywood in any era. And then the other three, the other two movies we talked about are, you know, A Face in the Ground, if you haven't seen it, it's really? on YouTube. Yeah. Someone's uploaded it, 1080p version, you know, or you can watch the new amazing Blu-ray restoration. Um, and The Harder They Fall, if you like Humphrey Bogart movies, it's another cracking Humphrey Bogart movie about the sweet smell of corruption. Um, and then The um, Wind Across the Everglades, for people who like those curios, it's worth tracking down. But uh, I would say as well, from the books, um, you've read more of them than me, but The Disenchanted is one of the great American novels. I've read it twice. I haven't read it for a decade or so, but uh, I'm going to be rereading it. It's, it. I almost gave up on it when I first started reading it like six weeks ago because about a quarter of the way into it when I realized, oh, no. This is going to be like 300 pages of this writer completely imploding. I was like, I don't know if I can handle it. It's going to be too bleak. But what I didn't know at the time is that they're going to have all these flashback chapters showing him mm. in his glory days. I was like, ah, oh, okay. I get some roaring 20s in the jazz age. I was like, I can't handle 300 pages of bleakness, but the bleak chapters are bleak. But by the end, it's so completely, utterly, comically over the top in his self-destruction that I was just screaming with laughter in spite of the fact that this writer, Manly Halliday, is coming to a very grim end with his uh, career. But yeah, so The Disenchanted, it, for a brief moment, my, my confidence wavered, but I'm glad that I stuck with it because that last half, I just fell into it and couldn't stop reading. Yeah, and I, I mean, people who listen to a podcast like this are probably interested in film from the 30s and 40s and stuff like that. And this is a novel that captures it absolutely amazingly as uh, what what makes Sammy run. But uh, yeah, it's just something, it's just... You know, it's top tier Bud Schulberg. Like, it really is up there with Fitzgerald and that sort of level of writing. So I would say, I mean, I have a little, I had a, I found a quote, uh, probably a good one to sum him up, Bud Schulberg, when he was, uh, I mean, he, he was 95 when he died. He had a good old innings. And he said, uh, I'd like to be remembered as someone who used their ability as a novelist or as a dramatist to say the things he, he felt needed to be said about the society while being as entertaining as possible. Because if you don't entertain, nobody's listening. So, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty good... It's and a I think lesson thing, that so many filmmakers fail to observe or fail to heed because they're so wrapped up in like... And I always liken it to like somebody backing up a big truck when you hit that big like beep, beep, beep. But it's like, here comes the agenda or here comes the message. But they're so wrapped up in their holy crusade, they forget... It helps if you entertain the shit out of the audience and then they'll they'll be open and receptive to any message you want to deliver, but they Absolutely. forget the sugar and just give you the medicine. And so oftentimes I find myself pushing back, even if it is a worthwhile message. Yeah, I mean, they'll follow you into hell if you if you do the, the old uh, iron fist and the velvet glove. But another another just an interesting snippet before we go is he had a sister, Sonia. And uh, she wrote a, a novel when she was only 19 years of age uh, in 1937. They, and, and he often says she was a much, you know, it's like um, you have two footballers in the family and everyone says, oh, this this kid is incredibly gifted. But it's the other one who makes it because he has he has the wherewithal and the sort of commitment to take his possibly even less talent, but turn it into something. Uh, and she wrote this novel in 1937 called They Cried a Little 
critically acclaimed and it was a big seller and you can get copies of it on the internet for like $500 now. And she never wrote another book. And the reason she didn't was because she was a perfectionist, you know, so she would, she would, she would, he said she would spend a year working on a short story. And he often said she was a much better writer than me, but, but he had the sort of more like his dad, the, the, the working screenplay yeah. idea that you just have to fucking get it out the there assembly eventually line needs to run the train needs exactly. to run, whatever metaphor it's, you want to use you got to get the content out the door it's not perfect but you know fuck it this is where it is at the moment and yeah. it's made and then you look back in it and it's flawed but it's done and if you just sit there polishing it forever it'll never be it'll never happen so absolutely well mr o'neill where can people find you online if they want to talk more about books flicks politics whatever the case might be Please don't talk about me. Uh, so to me about politics on Twitter is <laughs> it, it's uh, you know at at Sim O'Neill on Sim underscore O'Neill is on Twitter, uh, and I have a, a website um, called SimonO'Neill.org where they could they could watch uh, actually a little short film that I made won a couple of prizes recently, which was nice, uh, which was the short film featuring my dad. Uh, who, uh, it's a little nature documentary and uh, it's called Birdman. I made another film with that name, but uh, don't get Any plans to make that. any more shorts now that your hip is uh, on the end? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I had planned to do one in Paris uh, with someone I know over there in, in April and then that got knocked on the head. So, yeah, I'm just trying to maybe, as things are relaxed, do, do something yeah, over the next couple of months. We could do this again in the spring, as Woody Allen says, after Diane Keaton and himself get it on. But uh, yeah, hope, hopefully uh, soon enough, you know, it's it's, it's high time. So, um, yeah. Well, Simon, it's always a pleasure recording with you. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks because we're going to do a, a quick little Christmas special about a, a film and a story that are very near and dear to your heart. But we'll let that be a mystery for Indeed. now. But we can't thank you all enough for listening. hope you hunt down some of these books and some of these flicks. Bud Schulberg, he gets my highest possible recommendation. And I, can't, I mean, I'm about to say, I can't say enough about him. But I think after three hours, maybe I have said enough. So I'm going to go yeah. ahead and wrap this up. Enough. So we hope you enjoyed it. Definitely help me down on social media at Colbrax and please leave a rating and review on whatever platform you might be listening to the podcast on. If you want some short form content, hunt down my YouTube channel, Geeking with James Hancock. But thanks again for listening. We greatly appreciate it. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.